Yeah, I just, um, I sped read probably the last 30 or 40 pages of the book. The rest of it I've gotten, God, I think I've got something like 40 <laughs> questions already. Ironically, the last 30 or 40 pages are probably the best pages. They're, 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 uh, really? The white woman white stuff, stuff, really? You consider that yeah. the best part? It's, 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 it, I consider it the best because it's just one of those things where when Tim first told me, I was like, this is, you're barking up the wrong tree. This is just stupid. There's nothing to see here. And then it's like, oh no, this is, you're completely right. There is something here. Well, maybe we can discuss is. that toward sometime yeah. during the show and just say, look, I didn't read very carefully that part. Tell me why I'm missing out horribly. <laughs> um, <laughs> because the rest of it's fascinating. And, you know, this is going to be a, a terrible interview because I agree with just about everything you said. <laughs> but I guess I would be well, pre-selected to do so. I, uh, I, I am sort of a, you're part at least partially your spawn so you got <laughs> guess it's to be accepted yeah i guess I, mean, I never really think about that but no the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this we we need to go f through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain away from ideology we're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, well conditioned here? Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio, Radio Mysterioso? called Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon. This is volume one. 
which is apparently the folklore <laughs> volume, uh, written by Joshua Cutchin and Timothy Renner. Tim Renner, who are my guests today. Oh, and uh, I'm looking at the title page with illustrations by Tim Timothy Renner, which are amazing, Tim. Oh, thank you. They're beautiful. I mean, it looks like a, what it, what Josh described to me and what I saw when he sent me the um, the electronic version is it looks like an old-style book, like you'd see a Ivan Sanderson book with end papers and things like that. Yeah, that's I, I'm a big fan of these old folklore books, so that's kind of the look I was going for. Yeah, well, you got it. Are there going to be end papers in it? Like in the that that used to be kind of standard. I have a I have strangely enough a edition a first edition of um, Low, and it has very strange illustrations in the in the front inside the front cover in the first page. Are you doing yeah, something the, like that? Yeah, the the, the uh, sort of frontispiece illustrations re- repeated again in the back. So I guess they they work as end papers. The the one with the with the uh, Yeti or Bigfoot walking in the snow with the mountains. Yeah, that is like uh, suitable for having a poster printed. It's pretty amazing. Well, maybe I'll get prints done. I'm definitely getting prints done at the cover, so maybe I'll get. Prints yeah, it's done a beautiful that. cover too. People have already commented. Yeah, as as I'm uh, as I'm as I'm very fond of saying, uh, Timothy has produced a beautiful artifact in that A R T E F A C T sort of way. Yeah, most definitely. So, um, what I mean. Uh, I kind of know where Josh comes from because, you know, we've been friends for a while. Tim, do you prefer Timothy or Tim? Tim's fine. I I put Timothy on my books, uh, you know, to keep the people from Tim, Timmy-ing me, you know. And I, I, don't, I don't do Timmy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hold, hold, little, little Timmy Renner. Just tell the lead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know mostly Josh's background and motivation for... Actually, you know what? Being lazy, and unless you want me to record an intro, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Either you can go first. I don't care. Go, Josh. I'll go first simply because I've been on here before. Uh, hi, my name is Joshua Cutchin. Um, I'm an author who keeps failing upward uh, in, <laughs> in, the, in, the realm, in the realm of what I like to call speculative nonfiction. Um, my uh, chief ballywick is uh, fairy folklore, and I first met Tim Renner, gosh, how many years ago was it that you were first on Where Did the Road Go, Tim? 2016, maybe? Yeah. I thought you were going to say 20 years ago. I'm like, it feels like it. <laughs> um, so probably back around 2016, and I was, I was like, my podcasts were building up, and I was about to just skip Where Did the Road Go, because, you know, I just I was just looking for free up room. But I'm like, I'm going to listen to this. But but I was going to skip it because it was this guy who was doing local legend tripping, and I really couldn't care less. And uh, <laughs> I was so I was so struck by how incredibly thorough Tim was with all of his research, and uh, we just sort of we went on a couple shows of Where Did the Road Go together for a while. And I was contacted by Tim in September of 2018. I just finished Thieves in the Night, which is my my last uh, solo book. And I was going to take a bit of a break because I, I had these twins on the way. And uh, Tim's like, I really want to do a book about weird Bigfoot. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> just, just when you think you're out, they really back in. So I got reeled back in. And I, I, tried to, I tried to bang out as much as I could before the twins were born because I knew that would be you know madness trying to do that. So a lot of, a lot of especially the stuff in volume two, was written like literally in the hospital room. <laughs> I would bring by loads of books. Um, serendipitously enough, there was a New Age bookshop right by the hospital, and I was able to pop in there one day, and I was like, oh, look, a new Claude Lecouteau book. So I picked that up and added it to, to my pile, but I, I was bringing piles of books back and forth to the hospital room uh, because Sarah was in there for a pretty extended stay. Mm. 
Um, but anyway, and so it was uh, the beginning of a, a beautiful friendship. I think I think Tim's work. Uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Um, compliments mine in a lot of ways because Tim does Tim does what I do what I don't do a lot of, which is he does a lot of field work. He does a lot of getting his boots on the ground, and uh, that for various reasons is something that hasn't really been in my in my uh, in my in my uh, training and my background so far, I'm looking to change that, but uh, he brings a, a fresh perspective and he also thinks the way that I do a lot. So uh, Tim, your, your turn, batter up. Oh my goodness. Uh, Timothy Renner. I am, geez, a podcast host, strange familiars podcast and author. I've got uh, five books now, including where the footprints in uh, musician. You can hear some of my soundtrack work on hell year two. The last episode of hell year two is, ah. uh, most of my uh, most of the soundtrack there is is um, my music. I also do folk music too, besides the soundtrack work. And I am an illustrator, and I, I think that's everything. Uh, Forty and investigator, add that to the to the uh, pot as well. Right, and you have a few books out, and are they, they're not all on Bigfoot, are they? No, but there's but Bigfoot is in all of them. How's that? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Why Bigfoot, Bigfoot though? Adjacent. Yeah. Bigfoot adjacent. Yeah. yeah, Bigfoot adjacent. Why Bigfoot though, Tim? Why what 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 was the attraction? Oh, since I was a kid, I just loved it. I grew up in what I call the golden age of Bigfoot. You know, I was born in 1970. Uh, you know, Patterson Gimlin film was filmed a couple years before that, and yep. then Legend of Boggy Creek came out. You know, when oh, yeah, I was a kid. Yeah. In search of you know, love that show. Really, just a golden age for being interested in Bigfoot, and it always just uh, completely fascinated me, despite having what may or may not be UFO slash. Uh, I, I hate the. You know, I'm going to use quotes here, air quotes, abduction events in my life. Um, that never really uh, rang the bell for me. It was always Bigfoot. That was my my uh, first love as far as the paranormal goes. And uh, that's what I kind of went with. And uh, a lot of uh, what I've done has is, is kind of been, yeah, like Josh said, I think Bigfoot adjacent is, is a good word for that. <laughs> I think that's actually better in, in terms of what you do, because since you're not a Bigfoot head all the time, it allows you to start spreading your interest around to other things and notice these connections, which is uh, sort of the heart of this book. Yeah, uh, and that's I think something that that Josh and I both do, and it's something I think we both like get a, a thrill out of doing when we can make these connections to whether it's in folklore or whether it's in you know field work or whatever. When when we start seeing these things pop up, and we can say, "Hey, look at this over here! Look at this! You know this uh, folk folklore from Germany, mm-hmm. and then this is how it jives with these people's you know real life Bigfoot experiences." Yeah. Go. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Josh. I, I, I'm a big anybody fan. can I mean, cut most... in whenever it's all right it's just a, it's just a conversation <laughs> most of what I really enjoy is like like Tim said finding these connections and if, if there wasn't that sort of interdisciplinary aspect to to a lot of this stuff I don't think I'd find it as interesting uh, you know I, I've often said and I'll stand by it that um, it's not really the veracity of any single phenomena or any single account that I find compelling it's the consistency of accounts across cultures that shouldn't have these consistencies that I find really compelling in terms of the objective reality of these phenomena. Right. Personally. That's, right, right. That, 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 that's what gets my engine started. Yeah, and the the, the fact that um, I think you've been on the um, 
the uh, not anti, but let's not emphasize the materialist aspect of these things for a while now. And this just all these things that are brought up in the in the where the footprints in um, speaks to that connection. Um, and to me, that's fascinating. And also the title too, because I never really heard about um, accounts where Bigfoot tracks just end in the middle of snow or whatever. Is that oh, what, yeah. is that the you know why 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 did that become the um, main title apart from the obvious like well if the only thing that could happen is either they can fly or it's a paranormal thing. Well, some of the flesh and blood folks say, and, and honestly, I have a little trouble not laughing when I describe this, but. Some of them actually say they turn around and, and tiptoe backwards through their tracks. Yeah, I read that part. It's like, really? And they, they, they can yeah. step in the exact same spot, and there's not a double footprint. And yeah, There's a, there's a habituator that we talk about, because actually the, the missing, the, the, uh, the ending, abruptly ending trackways chapter is going to come in volume two. Uh-huh. And there's a story in volume two of, of a habituator who says that she saw like a Bigfoot backing up and like brushing out her tracks. <laughs> <laughs> with like with with like with like a branch you know and it's just it's it just seems a little if, if you're gonna say that this is a primate and there's no basis for that in primatology it just seems kind of silly so I, I i think was it you or me that i think i came up with the idea for the title is that right tim absolutely you, you did and it was very early on and i was kind of irritated that you came up with such a great one so early <laughs> on well well for, for me it meant a lot of things because what are footprints to big to uh, you know to cryptozoology to the bigfoot study they are the best scientific evidence that we have for bigfoot and yet you have these places where the footprints end and to me the footprint is like yeah, the representation yeah. of hard science materialist cryptozoology and we need to go beyond where the footprints end into wherever this thing goes. So that was sort of the the, the sort of metaphor that I was trying to get across uh, with the title, I think. Yeah, it's you crazy. Know, beyond, 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 yeah, beyond science into folklore, I kind of I think is what I say in the book. Go ahead, Tim. Oh, uh, to me, the, um, the disappearing trackways are a good visual into... And I don't want to beat up on the flesh and blood folks too, too, too hard because in many, many ways, as I think Josh more eloquently points, puts out in uh, his introduction than mine, in many, many ways, they do act like real living primates. I mean, they have a lot of things in common with regular primates. And I always say if, if someone's driving down the road and they see one on the side of the road, I would never blame that person for thinking, oh, yeah, they're just natural animals. Mm-hmm. If a hunt, if a hunter sees one walk past in the woods or something, of course, you know, I'd never blame that person for saying, well, of course, it's just a natural animal. It was just like any other animal. It walked by me in the woods. It is uh, usually in repeat encounters where the strangeness starts happening. Not always. There, there's some right from the get go that are very, very strange. But when you get repeat encounters, habituation or people that say, say the creatures are coming onto their property with frequency, that's where the strangeness almost always will start to click in. You'll, you'll start hearing stories of weird lights and other entities and, you know, poltergeist activity around the house and so forth, which, you know, it, it's hard to separate that uh, from the Bigfoot phenomenon when you have these, these multiple uh, encounters. Yeah. But the, the footprints thing, it's, I, I, I like to say that they build Rube Goldberg devices to try to make make these uh, creatures seem like natural animals. And they, they have to go through such great extents. They're either tiptoeing backwards or they, they make a superhuman leap and you don't see the next track. And it's just, 
rather than just saying, just stopping and saying, whoa, this is odd and we don't know what happened here. They make up reasons why you can't find the next track. And and that's, uh, frankly, for people who are claiming to be scientific, that's that's very unscientific. Well, the paranormal and the what supposedly happens during paranormal encounters is very unscientific because oh, absolutely, you know, it absolutely. it kind of flies in the face of anything that any any um, tools that people want to put on it, and it becomes you know all um, witness testimony. And if you think if you want to throw out witness, this is just like the UFO thing. I mean, it seems like the uh, the uh, paranormal exp- Bigfoot is exactly like the anti ETH, meaning most people mm-hmm. are going to go for the this is another thing that draws me to your book is most people are going to go for the aliens from other planets as well as the, you know, uh, unex, uh, uh, undiscovered primate. Um, and, uh, you know, that was one of my questions. Why are, why do you think most of the researchers are adverse to this, adverse to this, um, paranormal explanation? Is it because they want respectability in quotes or what? What do you think? I think that's a huge part of it. I think, yeah. They already know it's an uphill battle getting, you know, mainstream science or, you know, whatever you want to call it to accept a giant ape. And then they think if we start throwing in, you know, UFOs (laughs) with it and poltergeist, other weird stuff, they're never going to take us seriously. Uh, This is is part of the reason that a couple of years ago I said, and I still stand by it, that the last sort of, for lack of a better term, 14, supernatural, paranormal, whatever you want to call it, the last discipline that's going to actually embrace the um, the questions that consciousness studies raise is going to be cryptozoology, just by nature of what it is. It, it wants to be it wants to be a hard materialist science, and they want to sit at the big kids' table, and it's just, some of the stuff, obviously, you know, I think if you're, if you're looking for the thylacine in Tasmania, Great, that's that, that. Do that, you know. Be a cryptozoologist. Uh, if you're looking for, uh, you know, there are some things like, for example, I don't discount the idea that something like the orang pendek. Yeah, that's the next Asia, thing I was thinking of. Yeah, as a yeah. something that would be quote unquote real, normal, zoological. Uh, because I mean, even though there are some sort of, you know, um, there are some quote unquote <laughs> weird or magical uh, stories associated or in folklore associated with the orang pendek. It does seem a little bit more uh, flesh and blood than something like Bigfoot, but there is, there are plenty of people who talk about there being an active effort to, and Tim can speak to, uh, to this with some, uh, some colleagues of his who <laughs> got sort of a little bit too much attention for this. Um, but there seems <laughs> to be an active attempt to downplay and to discredit and to ignore some of the strange outliers and to distance yourself from people who talk about the strange stuff because it's somehow just like the UFO sullies, people. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it sullies the brand, you know, the first thing you talk about in the book is one of the most fascinating, uh, uh accounts I've ever read. And it was originally, I believe in either weird America, which was Jim Brandon's first book or in uh, rebirth of pan. And that's the um, 1973 Pennsylvania uh, thing uh, encounter that um, Stan Gordon uh, investigated. Could you guys describe that? And say, it's to me, cause you started out with it and it's a great touchstone for where you continue because most people haven't heard that story and it's completely bizarre. It is. It, I think when, as we were, you know, getting the book together, I think, you know, somehow at some point we came to the conclusion that, that that is, if you, if we had to pick one case to sort of be the, the, the demonstrable, demonstrable case for 
where the footprints end, it would be that case because there's just so much there. There's so much weirdness associated with it. Yeah, and it and, isn't just a witness. An investigator and other people came and saw some of this stuff too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a police. Um, there were so many people involved, and it went on, you know, technically for, for some years afterwards, the the witness uh, to the Bigfoot uh, had some strange stuff happen in his life afterwards. So, yeah, this happened in 1973 in western Pennsylvania, and I pieced together the most uh, thorough version of the account I could from from as many sources as I could. So I, I believe I used Al Berry's book from 73 or 74, I think, which mm-hmm. is just called Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic book. This is kind of like the, the, the great-grandfather of our book here. He did not shy away from weird stuff even back then. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Stan Gordon, of course, who who himself has has not shied away from from anything strange, and uh, the um, oh, what's the uh, Seth Breedlove's movie about that, Josh? Um, uh, the Chestnut Ridge. In Ch- yeah, Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. Yeah. Yeah. They they had Stan, uh, and I know Stan. He's a wonderful man. He's a super nice guy. Um, I I really like him. I've met him. Yeah. And he is pretty. Uh, fiercely um, protective of of his witnesses in general, and in this case in particular, uh, there's was a cassette tape recording of the events that night when the when the investigators got there, and wow. uh, he will not release that. I've been begging him, like, please let me have that, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah, but, but he will not. Which apparently, you know, has all the 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 screams and so forth. But in any wow. case, it starts with the it starts with the UFO. Um, this guy sees a UFO, uh, essentially land on his parents' farm, I believe, as he's, he's driving up to it. And yeah, at the edge some, of a wooded area, I guess. Yeah. With a fence in line field. in front of it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And he, he and some neighbor kids decide they're going to go take a look at it. They hop in a truck. He, he took with him a 30 six rifle and some tracers, um, and some regular rounds too, I think. And they went up to look at it. As they're looking at this, would seem to be a a, a red uh, globe in the air. I think I think they said it looked like a half globe that was either sitting or 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 uh, hovering hovering just above the ground. Mm-hmm. And as they're looking at this, one of the the kids points out that there's creatures coming up towards them, and they see these two creatures walking up the fence line. They're behaving very strangely. There, one was eight foot, and the the one behind it was seven foot hair-covered creatures, you know, your typical kind of Bigfoot thing. I think they said it was gray-brown hair. And they were walking along the fence line, and the bigger one would walk one section of fence and then bellow, and then the other one would come up behind it. So they were going fence pole by fence pole, walking up this. As they got closer, I think they said they had green glowing eyes. Uh, There's so many different color glowing eyes that that I may have that wrong. They they were glowing, nonetheless. Uh, the, The kid said, shoot it. And the, the guy, <laughs> the guy shot at it, and he said it when the bullet hit. He, he was an experienced hunter, and he said he knew he hit it, and he said it sounded like he was firing into a, a puddle or into a pond. He said it just sounded like the bullet hit water. Uh, the creatures turned around. I think the second or third shot, um, they said the the UFO, whatever that globe was, just disappeared. It just went. It didn't fly away. It just boom. It was gone. Yeah. And the creatures shot turned off. around, and they. <laughs> They had the, the, the better, you know, the, that was enough for them. So they headed out, called the police. And the police at this time, they were having so many accounts in Pennsylvania that Stan Gordon was 
on uh, whatever the 1973 equivalent of speed dial was. So the police <laughs> called Stan Gordon and he got his investigation team. So I think this happened at 1030 and Stan was at this rural location by one in the morning, I believe. So they were th- yeah. right there. Uh-huh. In the meantime, a policeman had been there. He said he could read a newspaper by the light of that was uh, on the ground, wherever this craft or, or whatever it was. was yeah, that was a glowing uh, circle or something like that that was left. Yeah. Yeah, it was bright enough to read a newspaper by, he said. They, and I forget which account it was, but most of the accounts don't have it, but the apparently the, when the policeman went back up there with the, the witness, uh, Kowalczyk, they saw the creatures again. And and Kowalczyk, fired, the witness, fired on them again. And this time the creature made a run at him, but was stopped by a fence. They were on the other side of the fence. Um, and they hopped in the police car and went back to the house where they met Gordon. They go back up there again. Hmm. Now they they can't see anything, but they could. I think they were smelling stuff. I said the, the animals were behaving weirdly. They wouldn't go into that section of the field. What, dogs? And, uh, I believe there were farm animals there. Oh, okay. Would, okay. Not go, would not go near that section of the field. But I think they said their dogs were acting strangely as well. As usual. And I believe, yeah, and I think they may, I may... They may or may not have heard the baby crying sound at this point, too. I, I forget. But, I think uh, they had. I think they had at this point, actually. I think. Wait. I think it was. I think it was happening as the 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 Sasquatches were approaching them. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, Whatever they were. So. Yeah. I so. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't remember if Stan had heard the the baby crying sounds when he re- got there. And, and this wasn't rare in Pennsylvania at the time to have uh, Bigfoot sightings in relationship to uh, UFO stuff. There was a big flap that involved both, which Stan could probably talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Stan's book, Silent Invasion, covers that. Uh, it, it incredibly well. It was right. like 73, 74, and it was just packed with uh, UFO, Bigfoot, and Bigfoot with UFOs, you know, seen at the same time. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. So as as the investigation team is back up there, the, the witness uh, kind of falls into this weird trance. He starts screaming. They, his, the witness's own father said he sounded like he was possessed by the, the Sasquatch creatures. He starts like howling and roaring and and running around. Uh, threw his glasses off, and I think it took two or three people to finally, you know, kind of calm him down and get him set and pick him back up. And when they did, he they gave him his glasses and he said, what, "Whose are these? I can see fine," which is very very strange. If uh, in some way his sight was healed either temporarily or or permanently, they don't they don't say which. Uh, but uh, take him back to the house. He had no recollection of his time when, when he was like growling and roaring and, and running around. His parents said that had never happened to him before. And he had a basically one of these visions of doom when he was out. He said he had had a vision of this grim reaper like figure who uh, gave the old, you know, the old UFO uh, contactee thing. You know, you guys better straighten up or, or the world's going to end mm-hmm. uh, message to him, which is very, you know, pretty common with the UFO contactees. Right. And, uh, and some abductees, some, too. Yes, yeah. Some years later, Stan you know, kept in contact with the witness and wanted to have him hypnotized, regressed. And he said, why would you do that? You already, you already had me hypnotized. And he told the story of these two people, like he said, two weeks after the encounter, came to his place, said they were with Stan Gordon, or else uh, at least suggested that. And... He said one was in uh, there. Shades Force of Keel. Yeah, very much so. And they hypnotized him. They showed him, he said they showed him pictures, photographs of UFOs and Bigfoot creatures. And uh, 
told him they would be in touch and left and, and he never saw him again. But he, he had that and he had some strange kind of psi experiences as well throughout the rest of his life, kind of uh, uh, predictions of, you know, airline crashes and, and strange things with, I think he said there was a bird one time on a branch that, that he, he told his friend, he's like, that bird's going to land on my shoulder. And the bird flew over and landed on his shoulders. It's very, very strange stuff that is usually associated with, you know, more with uh, UFO contactee stuff than, than your average Bigfoot uh, witness, let's say. Yeah, how much of the belief, you know, that was one of my questions way down the list somewhere, but in the UFO field or whatever, it's called the contagion. When something happens to you, there's follow-up weird stuff that happens that's not necessarily UFO related, when that kind of stuff would never happen in people's uh, lives before. How common is that with um, Bigfoot witnesses? It's probably more common than you think. I know I run into a lot of people who, you know, I'll go out on a Bigfoot call and then inevitably, um, for for a while I was letting people come to it on their own, but now I just outright ask. I let them tell me all the Bigfoot stuff and and when they're done, I say, okay, wh- what's haunted around here? And then inevitably, if it's not their own house, they will point me, you know, oh, right down the street, there's a you know haunted mill or something. And I'll say, you know, okay, where's the the tales of buried treasure? <laughs> and then, almost always, there's some kind of buried treasure, or something something of value in the ground. It doesn't have to be buried treasure; it could be like a lost silver mine or, or something of the like. So there's that kind of stuff, and then there's um, this other thing we ran into where people would have these effects at their house, um, like 50 miles away. So a guy was, you know, habituating Bigfoot. Um, was feeding them and forgot to feed them, had a horrible experience where he got roared at and basically chased out of the woods, drove home 50 miles, and that night he started getting knocks on the side of his house, which which he attributed to Bigfoot. Um, so this kind of stuff happens as well, where people drive you know, 50, 100 miles. Uh, we've, we've heard stories of people doing wood knocks. They'll go out to an area and do wood knocks, drive home you know, 50 or 100 miles, whatever it is, get out of their car and get the answer get the woodknock answer there. So mm-hmm. those kinds of things I think are probably a little more common. Uh, the things that you might say, oh, it's Bigfoot who followed me home and did this, as opposed to like this, the more like outlandish, uh, you know, seemingly unrelated things. And, and at, at the risk of sounding, you know, kind of high and mighty, this is just stuff that, that, that your flesh and blood cryptozoologists, the people who, have, who go into it with that presupposition – don't even think about. And if they think about it, they're like, oh, that's a weird coincidence. You know, they're, they're never going to actually try to make that sort of leap. Well, why, why is this like from, you know, especially like a folkloric standpoint, what could this possibly mean? Um, you know, they're going to, they're going to sort of reverse engineer it from the idea. Well, you know, in the case that Tim mentioned where there was a guy who was supposedly followed home 50 miles, well, the Bigfoot like past messages to other Bigfoot clans. So the Bigfoot, the Bigfoot at his, at the guy's home would harass him or like one of them like peed on his bumper so they could track this odor or just like these sort of ridiculous things where it gets to a certain point. You're like, well, let's, it makes more sense to view this through this continuum of just whatever this giant other is, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to, you know, trying to say, Oh, it's, it's a giant monkey. Let's try to figure out how we can fit a giant monkey into this. Um, you know, I was thinking earlier today, this kind of isn't a Bigfoot book. It's it's a book about fairies. It's a book about, you know, uh, it's a book about uh, spirit contact. It's a book about these spectral women in white. It's a book about ghosts. It's a book about witches. 
Yeah, poltergeist, have, uh, that, everything. That, that, yeah, that have this Bigfoot cultural framework laid onto it mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways. And, and you know, I, I would even sort of dial back a notch further and say that it's just about this giant paranormal monolith, whatever this other, you know, intelligence is that interacts with us. But it's, I, I wish that people would see how much of Bigfoot research is really just a cultural framework to which they apply things. And I think I, I tried to get that across in my, in my Wildnisgeist essay. Yes. Uh, uh, because, you know, it's, it's, that was just, again, it's about, it's, it's just sort of the most obvious, uh, the most, why don't you, why don't you describe that essay? Because you, you did a, uh, a lecture on it a couple of years ago at Paramania, and uh, it fascinated me. And then it's expanded quite a bit in this chapter. Um, how did you come up with that term? What does it mean? And what are you trying to? Uh, um, what is? What are you trying to push as as a thesis with uh, the what you called it? Wildnisgeist. Wildnisgeist, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because poltergeist, the um, German is a German term, so well, you've used the well, German for wilderness, right? Yeah, and you know, polter, noisy, geist, spirit, or ghost. And yeah. the problem with that is that poltergeist has such a domestic connotation. You know, you don't think about poltergeist being really anywhere else but homes. Yeah. And uh, you know, yeah. there's there's reams of there's reams of uh, of parapsychological research that I am not up to speed on. Somebody like David Metcalf could easily school me on it. But um, the the, the sort of the, the the commonly held belief was at least that there was a focus or an agent or a uh, you know, usually typically a, a prepubescent uh, child, maybe a, a young girl typically is sort of the stereotypical thing. I think some of that research has changed according to what I've heard David say, but that's sort of been the typical approach. And that somehow they're manifesting this PK energy right. around them in various ways, like, you know, pots and pans flying across the room and, you know, apports of things and stones hitting the walls and wrapping and all this stuff. But it occurred to me, and, and this is not something that's new to me, Lauren Coleman's drawn this conclusion and several other people have, but mm-hmm. but there are very there are a lot of similarities that if you look at sort of, you know, the second tier Bigfoot reports that you find at the BFRO website, the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization website, right. that the, 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 class, the, the class B reports, the second tier reports, are things that are indicative of Sasquatch activity, even though Bigfoot's never seen. Um, and those things typically involve odd odors, animal noises, strange voices, knocks, raps, thrown stones. And it occurred to me, you know, this <laughs> all is, the poltergeist this, stuff. <laughs> every single damn one of them's a poltergeist. Thing. Yeah. And if you, if you dig a little bit further, you find that there are cases. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that all, all these things are not only poltergeist phenomena; they're also sort of witch phenomena and you know, fairy phenomena that you find. But um, but especially you know, so so my my idea was like, well, poltergeist is a term you can't say like you know, woods poltergeist because poltergeist I think is just is so it's kind of like UFO; it's got a certain connotation to it. So that's where I came up with the idea of, of wildernessgeist as a term, meaning wilderness poltergeist or wilderness sorry wilderness spirit wilderness ghost. Um to describe this exact same activity in a wilderness context. Uh, now, were, you, I, were you and Soraya playing with that idea? So I, the first time, like this, that idea really kind of turned my head. So I, I was on where did the road go with Josh one time. And I was very early. This might've been the first time we were on together. I was telling a story of a personal experience where I had heard wood knocks and I had a bad smell and uh, filled with fear completely filled with fear and then heard heard uh, uh, knocks in the other direction and uh, completely assumed it was a Sasquatch encounter and and both uh, Josh and Sarai had said, no, that sounds like a, a, a poltergeist thing if it wasn't in the woods. And that was literally like 
kind of opened my, my <laughs> third eye of Bigfoot right there. It just <laughs> went, oh, okay. And that was like that was the Zen master slapping me, you know. And, and, <laughs> well, and that. Zen in the and Zen in the art of Bigfoot uh, uh, sir, uh, research. Um, I, I think that I had been playing with this idea pretty early on because looking back on it, I have a, a post from December 2015, which, you know, the Trojan Feast came out in what, May of 2015. Mm -hmm. So, um, so pretty early on, I, I started sort of codified this as a possibility. Um, and it's something that just sort of stuck in my head for a while. And it's, again, it's not that I'm the first person to point this out, but I, I think nobody had, has ever, none, really are, none of us are the first person to point anything out. <laughs> you yeah, find out. <laughs> true. Yeah, that, this is true. But uh, but I, I really found the need to sort of wrestle with this and, and to sort of look at it. And so, you know, th there are a couple of different things that this could be. I mean, you can't deny the fact that throwing rocks is a is a you know a, an observed primatological behavior. Um, yeah. You know, so so are noises, so are you know uh, animal noises, so is our weird smells. So you can't write that off. But at the same time, it's just I just would encourage people to sort of check their context. Part of this is you know, Soraya said to me one time about. Uh, about you know the context of of lights you know you see lights in a in a house and oh the house is haunted but you see lights in the sky and it's it's uh ufos and you see lights in the forest and it's fairy lights or ghost you know ghost lights so it, it I, that really drove home to me like how much of these labels that we put on things are really completely culture dependent and you you combine that sort of attitude with something like sort of a, a valet model of looking at these phenomena and you sort of arrive at this sort of um this this sort of uh, i think um, will, willingness to, 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 to be ignorant, willingness to, to just say, I, I don't know, you know, there's, I think there's kind of a, a grace in that to just say, I don't know, but you shouldn't really marry yourself to this one idea or this other idea because there's so much shared in between these different things. So I have a couple different ideas. You know, I, I wonder honestly, genuinely, if some of these class B reports where people are getting strange noises and wood knocks and which are, which would be raps, you know, in a poltergeist, uh, scenario, um, and, and thrown stones. I wonder if they're not actually just, um, you know, they're, if they're not poltergeist agents themselves, you know, they're not, they're not, the, they're not, they're not generating this, this actual PK energy that's doing this, but because if they're in the forest, they're going, Oh, it must be Bigfoot. I, I, I really wonder if that's the case or, you know, my, my kind of favorite thing is that there are Bigfoot, but Bigfoot are the uh, poltergeist focus. <laughs> and they're the ones generating <laughs> poltergeist. Well, I think that's the least plausible, but I really like that idea that that Bigfoot are just they don't even know that they're they're generating all this psychokinetic energy. They're just doing it by accident. As you describe in the book, both of you, there are many, many instances of communication between a witness or a researcher and whatever they're, you know, Bigfoot or whatever it is. And maybe you could describe either one of you how that manifests and why that may, might be going on. And three, I mean, is there any intelligence behind is behind it or is it just weird playful energy well i mean it, it, so i don't want to be constantly pushing volume two but volume two has an entire chapter dedicated to mind speak and some of those stories get really really weird like you know um like in these entire like my name is gonsol and i'm from the craton system and we are here <laughs> to we mean no harm basically like contactee stuff um, right. That, that people are that people are getting you know, in this brainwave from Bigfoot. Sometimes it's just a feeling that people get. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's it's you know it's I mean Tim's the one who's been playing chess with something out in the woods. <laughs> what? <laughs> Not literally chess. That's, that's my wife nicknamed. Uh, I was building cairns and and they were changing. This goes into that whole other story. It's it's a long story, but uh, my wife nicknamed it my chessboard. That. Uh, <laughs> 
something was moving the stone. But but yeah, there are you know to, to sort of streamline sort of what Tim what Tim goes through and, and what a lot of people go through. It's 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 communication in the sense that there seems to be a playful sort of. Uh, give and take between people. They'll leave something out and they'll come back and like, it'll be changed. I think Tim, it wasn't in your case. It was a leaf that was set underneath a rock that you'd set out. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first time that I had thought it was another person probably up until that point. I, I turned and left for 15 minutes and came back because my wife hadn't seen my chessboard as she called it. And when we came back, there was a leaf under one of the rocks. That's that it had, was no way that was there, there before. No way. And Tim, and so again, this is something that you know, if you're into Bigfoot, you're like, oh, it must be Bigfoot. He thinks you're leaving him. You know, he's trying to he's trying to make you friends with you. But like, you know, T- Tim points out that you know, very, pointed out very astutely, very early on, that this is basically the exact same thing you would do if you were making an offer to like a forest god or something. You'd have you'd have a designated space where yeah. you'd have an altar with with offerings, and you know, that would be the space where you'd leave things and you'd back off, and you know, the the, the spirit would come and take those offerings. There are rules explicitly in folklore, and uh, if you break them, it will let you know. And I, honestly, I mean, that's what these, I think, is happening with these people who say, "Oh, I was, I was feeding Bigfoot. I left out candy bars, and then I stopped, and then Bigfoot went crazy and, uh, you know, jumped on my roof and and beat on the side of my house and and you know won't let me sleep, and so forth." Well, there's a endless number of folkloric accounts where basically people are leaving spirit offerings and then they stop and then very, very bad things happen. Their cattle gets killed or, um, you know, the, the spirits will trash their house, you know, for whatever reason. It's not even like rare. There's no question <laughs> to me that we're, that we're not, we're, we're talking about the same things at this point. Um, because, uh, you know, the flesh and blood folks say like, well, Bigfoot, he became dependent on that food and you stopped leaving that food and then he got mad. Well, if we're talking about something that's eight foot tall and a thousand pounds or, or, you know, better, maybe unless you're leaving wheelbarrows of food, you're not making a dent in that thing's caloric intake for the day. It's, it, there's no way, no way, no how. And the idea that they would become dependent on a couple candy bars or an energy bar or something or you know, a few apples or something that people leave out is absolutely ridiculous. Well, they what are more tasty to, than leaves. So they true, true, <laughs> true. <laughs> but I think it comes down to intention. Uh, and I go over this explicitly in my chapter on, on gifting. Um, people talk about even like making a special Bigfoot garden, like, like some of these things. Well, if you build, plant a garden, Closer to the woods, away from your garden, Bigfoot will thank if you, you for it. Build it, they will come. And, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and he he knows that'll be his garden. He won't bother your garden anymore. Well, that's not a wild animal. Uh, you know, any any other animal is going to be an opportunist, especially something that big. It's going to be a caloric opportunist. Yeah. anything it can get its hands on, it's going to eat. So now I would just go, oh, yum, two gardens. You know, uh, <laughs> but well, yeah, go the ahead. Intention is there, yeah. and it's they've built this special Bigfoot garden now. So. You know, there's there's a lot of intention in this, and that to me takes it to the immediately to the realm of spirit offerings, and and away from any sort of uh, yeah, you know, <clears throat> dietary supplement for Bigfoot. Yeah, this goes back you know to forever to leaving offerings mm-hmm. for gods or spirits or whatever to influence either them not bothering you or them helping you or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, 
Although I don't know if Bigfoot, uh, anybody turns into, the Bigfoot turns into their spirit animal or anything, but it's the same kind of communication. Or does that happen? Uh, I mean, I, I would argue that, yeah, with somebody like uh, uh, Jack, quote unquote, Kawani Lapsuritis, who by all, by all, by all accounts is, a, is very genuine, very uh, earnest and, and kind fellow. Um, he claims to have all sorts of, you know, interactions with Bigfoot guiding him through life and Bigfoot healing him and alongside, you know, alien greys and stuff. Um, oh, yes. You, you go so, yeah. into that. There, there's a few pages on him in there. Yeah. It, I mean, you can't you can't really talk about weird Bigfoot without talking about <laughs> Kalani Lapsuritis. It's yeah. got yeah, it right there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it is it is one of those things that, uh, that, that, that you do see. And it's just... Again, I think I think people will kind of be confused by the book because you know we have we have topics. Well, we you have, have books, to read you know, it with a soft. Writer. You kind of have to read it with a soft focus. I I I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Because just because like the phenomenon, to... if you look at it with a hard focus, you or, or any paranormal phenomenon, if you look at it on a hard focus, you start to um, delineate and start to categorize, and it the the phenomenon doesn't like that. Go ahead. No, and and, and, and and you know, I think that if you try to look at, you've tried to take all of our chapters in aggregate, you're just going to be confused as hell because it's, <laughs> you know, because we're talking about fairies, we're talking about ET, we're talking about witches, we're talking about ghosts, we're talking about you know these archetypes. No, it's well life. organized if you actually go through and read it. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and so the chapters are standalone, but they're not because they reference other things and uh, other chapters. Um, but you know, what you kind of got to just do is is basically what we're trying to say is like, you can't really say that you know anything definitely about Bigfoot because it could be a lot of different things that we're dealing with and whatever the Bigfoot phenomena is, whatever actually, if there is an objective reality that lies behind it, whatever that is, um, is drawing upon all sorts of varied folklore traditions from all these different things that I just mentioned, uh, in, in some, in some really interesting ways. Yeah. Uh, well, how many researchers are kind of on this, uh, are, are, are what? Um, uh, 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 receptive to this kind of thing, you know. Obviously, Stan Gordon, um, and I actually, when I was reading the book, the first other researcher I thought of, cryptid researcher, that was uh, not only discussed but was open to the uh, paranormal and folkloric aspects, was Ted Halliday, the the um, the Loch Ness yeah. guy. Yeah, the, the Goblin Universe guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, I've, I've only uh-huh. got the dragon and the disc in one other one of his other books, but I think that was, I think that was him. I'm, I might be speaking on a term. Tim, I mean, you're a little bit more plugged into the Bigfoot community than I am. I mean, I don't think giving necessarily a number might be as as conducive as uh, as you know um, as uh, maybe just sort of a percentage of people that you think that are that are into well, this. I'm, and there's people who deal with weirdness, like like Stan, for instance. Stan is a document. Stan documents stuff. He doesn't go beyond that. You know, I I mean, he does obviously, but but he not won't publicly anyway. Yeah, he won't sit there and weigh in and tell you like, oh, I think Bigfoot's an interdimensional creature. Yeah, he's not going to do that. He's going to say, this is what the witness saw. This is what we recorded when we got there. You know, right? And, and yeah. So making the folklore connections, I don't know who's doing that. Um, honestly, uh, yeah, you're probably it's right. Been it's been. A kind of a journey for me to sort of uh, try to tell people to, you know, you need to look at like the wild man archetype, not just, you know, gorilla reports and, and look at the wild man in folklore because there's a lot there and it sure sounds like what Bigfoot, you know, encounters are as well. Um, 
But I, I will say, I think in general that I've been calling it a wave of woo. I think <laughs> the Bigfoot community is struggling really, really hard with the, the flesh and blood thing to just... <laughs> They're struggling it. to hold the line. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of people are turning. There's a lot of people who never would have before. And I'm not going to necessarily name names, but I, that are ne- suddenly going, oh, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff here. There's a lot of weird stuff here. And we, we can't account for it as a as a gorilla. And it's interesting. I feel like it's kind of um, I feel like it's kind of cryptozoology. Bigfoot research in general, more specifically, rather, um, Bigfoot research kind of is lagging behind ufology because you could you would have said the same thing about ufology. I mean, like how many years ago, Greg, would you have made that same statement like they're trying to hold the line? I mean, they're still kind of trying yeah, to hold the line. Maybe but... 10 years ago, maybe a little longer than that. But, yeah, you and I and friends of mine have been, you know, kind of whining and pushing this thing forever not because we're smart or anything it's just because we were weaned on people like um you know jim brandon and valet and keel and people like that right right and and and, and, but i think at this point it's pretty safe to say that that uh the uh the seal is broken like there's no there's no way you're getting the, the consciousness stuff and the the weirdness out of out of ufology as much as people would like to try um yeah just because weirdos are associated with it doesn't mean it's not important and part of the mix Right. right. Um, and, you know, so I think this is this is all sort of starting to happen a little bit more in the in the Bigfoot community. But, you know, Tim is right. If you go you can go back to medieval, like literally medieval uh, tales of wild men mm-hmm. and they read just like Bigfoot stories, you know, medieval tales of wild men. Yeah, <laughs> there's some of those like, in the book, too, yeah. actually, from, from yeah, like the um, 17th century, I think, and before. Yeah, and you know, uh, one of Tim's uh, one of Tim's projects is going through the different states and uh, and looking into these old newspaper reports and seeing how many he can pick out of these wildman stories that sound like Bigfoot stories. And uh, he had a really insightful insightful uh, look into like the evolution of the wildman as as a as an archetype. You want to talk about that a little bit, Tim? Yeah, please. Yeah, well, you know, I'll, when I started writing those books, I was. Uh... I don't think I've ever, Soraya will tell you I, I was 100% flesh and blood. I don't think I've ever been 100% flesh and blood, but I was 85% flesh and blood for sure. I was I was definitely like, there's these are creatures and they're out there. And when I started writing those books, I had to explain things away like clothing. So, you know, a lot of these wild man reports are just people. They're, they're, it's a miner that came down from the hills and, and somebody said, oh, it's a wild man. But if you look into it more, it's like, well, it's just a guy. <laughs> he ends up at, at he ends up at the poor house or he ends up, you know, in, in jail and so forth. And so you have to kind of filter them out. But the ones that, that really sound like Bigfoot sightings where people are, are reporting, you know, being terrified by this huge thing that's covered in hair, but also has a ragged shirt on. You know, and I, yeah, there's a I whole chapter those, or section of it on that, which I didn't even know about. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I was explaining those away as widespread as, anyway, um, sort of the Victorian uh, idea of like, we, we don't want to write about naked wild men running around the woods. So we'll just throw clothes on them for the article. And, you know, I mean, you're looking at a culture that like wanted to cover up the legs of furniture. So like it's it's entirely possible that yeah. there might be some of that involved. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. prudishness. But yeah. over time you know, you start looking at these the, the medieval wild men are very wizardly. They're very uh magical. And you know what like Josh said, they they do seem like Bigfoot in some points. They're also sort of revered as almost these 
these wizards of of the woods and so forth. And by the time you get to the 1800s, you know, I've I've sort of wondered if uh, the wild man archetype didn't change a little bit. And where we are now, the further we've gotten away from from nature, in other words. So so the in the medieval times, there were there were, you know pretty much these wise men of the woods and so forth for yeah, the most we're part. Yeah, moving into Jack Hunter territory here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, by the time they get to the 1800s, they're they're sort of half clothed. Sometimes there'll be accounts of these big hairy things carrying like a like a rusty musket that that yeah. won't fire. Uh, yeah, as right? as technology and um, and uh, society changes to a more industrialized than that, the the Bigfoot lore or the whatever the wild men lore seems to follow. Yeah, yeah, and and where we are today, I I feel like we the further we've gotten away from nature. So, you know, we've we've gotten more into technology and more to nature. It's almost as if the wild man archetype itself has gotten wilder to sort of compensate. Mm-hmm. So now we have this this very wild, you know, Bigfoot wild man that's just just, you know, close to a gorilla. And we are, you know, the, whereas the 1800s wild man would have been, you know, sometimes partially clothed and and more like, a, you know, somewhat more human, just a wild man, just a hair covered man. Yeah. This and, is, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's it's really interesting to me that you have the spectrum of of uh, you know the wild man going from sophisticated you know very I mean if you're a sorcerer you're sort of de facto scientist of the of the area you know, you're knowledgeable in other words you're you're knowledgeable of the way that the world works and you see it going from this sort of this mighty esteemed place to something more base you know and there's that interstitial period where you have these wild men running around. Uh, you know, wearing clothes and, and whatnot and still being more human. And at the same time, you have the UFO phenomena sort of on the inverse uh, spectrum, right? So you have like, you know, you have the primitive airships that slowly are getting more and more sophisticated to the extent that now I think we've sort of seen even more of a sea, sh- sea change in the way that uh, that UFOs are being depicted in popular media as being some sort of weird amorphous plasmid thing that you wouldn't have ever thought thought to have heard about, you know, 20 years ago. So I, I think it's interesting that the Bigfoot phenomena keeps devolving and the UFO phenomena keeps evolving. And I think that there's something to be said about the way that our cultures um, are set up and how we perceive the other and the sort of cultural um, the cultural concepts that we bring to this other and how we perceive these two different aspects of the phenomena as as devolving and evolving the the more technological we get well you know, only ghosts seem to stay the same <laughs> only go, yeah exactly well that brings up you know and i as you probably both know i'm always on about this the co-creation thing how much of bigfoot is us and how much of bigfoot is bigfoot i mean that's a very basic question but i think you know what i'm getting at well, I mean, there there are some people and some some researchers. There, there's a researcher that I admire a great deal because he seems, by all appearances, and Tim has some really good stories about him, to be a great guy, and he's he's done some absolutely fine work. Um, Ron Moorhead, uh, who has you know again can't say enough about him and his contributions to the field, but at one point he said, you know, well, anything that can scare people and leave droppings and leave footprints, it must be a physical creature. And I'm like, well, that's that's a little bit. That's a little bit ignorant of of, of parapsycho- parapsychology because one of the primary ways that ghost hunters used to operate before the digital age was to spread talcum powder on the floor and wait for footprints to emerge. You know, um, and if you if you re- if you if you reframe things like droppings and hair as sort of these vestiges of uh, physicality, like we get in terms of ectoplasm or um, or ectoplasm or something like that, right? Um, it's 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 
again, it's an example of the Bigfoot community operating under this very 19th century materialist, dualist, false dichotomy that I think other disciplines are moving beyond. The idea that things don't necessarily have to be physical or non-physical. Now, as far as what that means, like, you know, how much of Bigfoot is Bigfoot and how much of Bigfoot is us, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, guess it, I guess it that, depends. Well, well, I think it's interesting that there are that there are plenty of consistencies between reports, but there are also a lot of inconsistencies that if, if you're describing even one animal with several subspecies should not be as varied as they are. You know, you've got, you know, hooded noses and non-hooded noses and you've got uh, you've got varying sizes from like some of these sizes of these things that people describe them you're getting into sort of mark norman true giants territory of pushing you know upwards of 12 feet and more yeah um and you've got the little foot you know the little foot which you know match very closely to to some old world fairies like goblins and and brownies but Mm -hmm. you've got the little feet that are like two feet tall and you've got the big foot they're like four to five feet tall and then you've got the six to you know nine feet tall and then you've got nine and up and it's just it's, it's crazy so there's a lot of variation there and it sort of mirrors i think um the variation that you see in other aspects of the paranormal you know obviously you know the 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 euphonauts that have been reported since time immemorial are a varied bunch you know <laughs> was it bananas covered with terry cloth right um, <laughs> oh yes the terry cloth bananas yeah. from south america that yeah. uh, that's one of my favorite yeah <laughs> That's one of but, my favorite but, cases it, ever. Yeah, and you know, you know, you can look at something like the work of uh, Catherine Briggs, who tried to codify a lot of these different, even just just European fairy traditions, and some of them are crazy. It's like a like a like a leg with an eyeball in it, you know. And then you look at the uh, the Japanese <laughs> tradition of, of you look at the Japanese tradition of the yokai, and it's just as as you know robust and varied. So I, I think the fact that you have these different phenomena manifesting in so many myriad different ways means that yes, there is definitely a, a, an individual component to it. That's that's just my two my two cents. Well, individual. <laughs> cultural and a few other things go ahead yeah. Tim oh I, I mean Josh took the ball and ran with it I'd, I'd absolutely agree um, there seems to be you know and, and just based on my own experience you know it, and this goes back to what you said before it, it seems like it can be very very playful at times until it isn't <laughs> and, and, and yeah that and, sounds uh, like, um, uh, like ghost hunting too or you know Ouija board stuff yeah yeah, uh, th- there can be a turn, and and it can turn back. You know, the, um, I had some things that kept me out of the woods for a while, and uh, you mm. know, I'm I'm back again. I'm I, I'm I'm there. I'm I'm back. But uh, you know, it it can get kind of weird. And, and man, I I don't know. Like at some point, I really my wife said, you know, you're playing chess with yourself as regards to the chessboard, and 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 at some point, I really sort of thought, yeah, maybe I am. Maybe this is just some kind of big you know side game or something that that i'm doing with myself but then when things went dark i I just the only thing i say is i i hope it wasn't me i hope i wouldn't do that to myself yeah well it's i i think that you know when i say that about what's the interaction what i mean is there is some and i think that uh just the myriad of different things that that appear uh bigfoot now and um in the paranormal field, especially in the UFO field, the only thing you could really put it down to is the individuality of the of the witness, you know, the the wit the witness yeah. themselves, um, and I, how I people see things differently, and how you know if something is not familiar, you're going to fill in some details to make it more palatable or easier to remember or better to tell a story with or whatever to you. 
I had a witness on my podcast recently, a Bigfoot witness, who had an encounter with uh, other. He, he was about ten years old, and he was in the woods, and he, he saw a, a huge white Sasquatch, and it's like in a fallen tree that jumped down. And uh, they, they, I think he said they were ten feet away, eight to ten feet. They were very close to it, and uh, you know, he he got this feeling that like it was just telling him get out, like this the woods aren't for you today. Huh. They turned around and, and ran. Years later, he contacted one of his friends. He he became interested in Sasquatch, you know, as an adult. He kind of forgot about it, you know, right. and uh, and put it away for a while and became interested in, in Bigfoot as an adult and contacted his friend that was with him. And I found it very, very interesting because his friend said, oh, yeah, that thing was jet black. Now, he remembered it as white. Yeah. And his friend said it was jet black and evil. And he didn't. He said he didn't remember it as evil at all. He almost got it like it was protecting them, like it was saying, don't go any further. There's something back here that, that's not for you. And uh, his friend just said, no, it was black and evil. So there you go. That's, you know, two people who were there yeah. who saw <clears throat> something, you know, and, and can't agree even on the color of it. Yeah, it's not uncommon in UFO reports as well. How much do um, researchers contribute to this? Because that, that's a that's the kind of a billywhack with me, too, in UFO researchers. It's like, I'm a UFO researcher. I'm going to arrive on the scene. There are certain expectations about a UFO researcher. That researcher will fulfill those expectations and ask you the proper questions and all that. They won't let you go into a weird area. And that might even be the subtext. Even though something weird has happened, you're not going to say... I saw a light in the sky and, oh, yeah, by the way, you know, um, my dog was turned inside out, too. It's like, you know, that, that wouldn't even be relevant to their sighting, but the UFO researcher is not going to ask about it. So how much of this weirdness is self-selected out by the actual researchers? An awful lot. An awful lot. I mean, I don't know if, you know, it's ever been officially recognized, but there's supposedly a, a special file the BFRO has where anything that sounds weird and not like a gorilla goes in that file. Um, so there's, there's a lot of that being done. There's these, the cases are, I like to say they're weird washed. <laughs> they take the weirdness out of them. Yeah. Uh, Ape, Ape Canyon may be the best example of that. The, the oh, wow. We got to talk about that one at the end here at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Or now. Uh, if, if you want to talk about it now, I'll go into it now. It's yeah. Why, why is that relevant to my question that I just, I just posed? Please, please describe the incident, which is like, you know, harrowing and, and, in, and insane. It's one of those, uh kind of touchstone um, cases. Yeah, I mean, you'll read about it in, I don't know, you know, probably a majority of the books that just want to do a, a sort of uh, general coverage. of. Yeah, Bigfoot. it's like the Roswell of Bigfootery almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, up until we were writing this book, I'd only ever heard of it as these miners had a cabin. They shot an, uh, a Bigfoot. Oregon or something? Night, Washington or Oregon? It's uh, uh, Mount St. Helens. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, about I think a, a mile or so. In 1950, no, 24, I think. Oh yeah, that's right. It was really early. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the creatures came back that night and attacked the cabin. And depending on you know what you read, they they either pelted it with rocks or boulders. Some of the newspaper accounts are very kind of uh, exaggerated, I think. Um, and they pelted it with rocks. They were trying to you know they were beating on the walls. They were trying to get in. There was multiple creatures. They got the impression that. You know, they said they saw three through the cracks in the cabin, but they they got the impression there was many more there from the sounds of them running around the the cabin and so forth. Um, left hmm. in the morning, I think the and uh, never came back. And that's pretty much the tale that is as told in in the annals of of Bigfootery. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly, Kelly Hopkinsville to, of Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go ahead. If you find Fred Beck, who was one of the miners there, if you find 
his account of it, um, it gets very, very strange very quickly. And <laughs> yeah, to say the least, yeah. <laughs> what did he, he say? Uh, <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll actually read a quick, just, this is a quote from Fred Beck. Please do. That, that he said that you never hear. He says, first of all, I will say that they are not entirely of the world. I know the reaction we experience as these beings attacked our cabin impressed many with the concept of great ape-like men dwelling in the mountains. And I can say that we genuinely fought and were quite fearful, and we were glad to get out of the mountains. But I was, for one, always conscious that we were dealing with supernatural beings. And I know the other members of the party felt the same. So that was written in the 60s. Fred Beck wrote that about, with his son, he wrote about his account. And Did he say why, besides the fact that they had that feeling that that was going on? Well, the whole event starts with they encounter a very tall Indian spirit. They do not say how tall. They said it was a Native American spirit that told them to follow a white arrow into the wilderness. So now they're following something in the sky, you know, maybe a UFO, who knows, a white arrow. And they follow this to their mind. Now, on the way to their mind, they, they meet another spirit which, again, they do not describe the appearance of this woman. But they said it was a very kindly spirit they called Vander White. And they went on to name their mine, the Vander White Mine. They named it after this, this spirit they supposedly met. They were at this mine for some time. They were mining there for some time before they ever saw a creature. And they had seen very, very strange things, such as two footprints in the middle of an acre-wide sandbar. Uh, just two, they said they could not figure out how two footprints got there unless something had picked, picked up. One of the creatures dropped it in the sandbar, took two steps and picked it up again because <laughs> yeah. it's, there's no way for it to get, you know, to, for those footprints to be there. Otherwise, uh, they heard Where strange the start and end. sound coming from the mine, I think, underground, uh, different raps and knocks. And then they started to see creatures. So that after all this weird stuff, they started to see creatures and uh, you know, the, the attack pretty much, you know, the story of the attack is the story of the attack. That's, he pretty much said that's that. But um, he had a, an apport of a pencil into his hand. <laughs> he said he knew it was at his house. He needed a pencil and had, a, you know, so they're having apports. They're having just all this weird stuff uh, associated with it that just completely got left out of every yeah, account. The, the whole merry-go-round. And is it all of yeah. them? All of the witnesses? Yeah. Or well, at unfortunately, least a... Fred Beck's the one who wrote the book. So, right, right. Know, this is how well, at years least later. one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he, he has accounts from the people that he was with. Like, it was one of the fellows he was with who found the footprint and said, like, I can't imagine how they were, these were made unless something picked him up and dropped him there and picked him up again. Uh, but, you know, you don't hear from, from them specifically. You know, it's, it's Fred Beck's account, essentially. So that. that you know, in, in the in the literature, none of that stuff is ever repeated. Just the scary part of banging around the the cabin and all that. Um, yeah, the parts that make it seem like a like a undiscovered primate or a relic hominid in the woods. Those right. Are the parts. That and this and this has gone on for probably the entire history of Bigfoot research, and maybe is just starting to open up right now, as uh, Josh said. I think so. Yeah. It's. I get the sense. I mean, so you know, Mike uh, Clellan used to say, you know. And his very Mike Clellan way of saying, <laughs> I, I, lo I love Mike to death, but he's like, you get these people to the bar after the conference and they start to open up to you about all the weirdness. And yeah, I have heard people use that exact same metaphor. Haven't you, Tim? 
Oh, yes. I've heard people use that exact same metaphor about Bigfoot researchers. Like, you get them to the bar, you get a couple drinks in them, and they're like, let me tell you about this. <laughs> and then they go into all this strange stuff. Yeah. Including, you know, including anomalous lights. Mm-hmm. Which is something that's, that, that's kind of, I think that's kind of where the uh, the the crack really really began the crack in the facade is with these anomalous lights because it's it's just gotten reached such a critical mass of people reporting these anomalous lights around uh, Bigfoot areas of heavy Bigfoot activity and it's just it's just it's it's undeniable at this point that there seems to be some sort of some sort of connection there. Um, I talk in the book about people in uh, the Texas Big Thicket area, which is a large swath of of wilderness um, in East Texas. Uh, where people have literally observed Bigfoot transforming into balls of light and flying away, or balls of light transforming into large black cats. Again, there's, you know, even Lauren Coleman himself said it was very easy to find overlap between large black cat sightings and uh, Bigfoot flaps. Um, mm. And these balls of light, you know, there's there's a great quote that I was shocked to read um, when I when I found it. Um, there's a great. Uh, book uh called british goblins by by a folklorist a work a folklore collector work sykes and he mentions how uh he, he he talks about these 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 uh these will of the wisp these you know ignis fatus these these ghostly these ghost lights basically and he talks yeah. about them um he talks about them in the uh, in the new world he says the breton sand yan itad saint john and the father is a d- double ignis fatus fairy carrying on its finger ends five lights which spin round like a wheel the Negroes of the southern seaboard states of America invest this goblin with an exaggeration of the horrible peculiarly their own. They call it Jack-o'-lantern and describe it as a hideous creature five feet in height with goggle eyes and huge mouth, its body covered with long hair, and which goes leaping and bounding through the air like a gigantic grasshopper. This frightful apparition is stronger than any man and swifter than any horse and compels its victims to follow it into the swamp, where it leaves them to die. So there you have this this curious, like... A, this is included in a book on fairies, you know, a book yeah. on goblins. B, you've got this this association of of lights with Bigfoot because that's a Bigfoot. Let's just let's just call it what it is. It's a Bigfoot. Um, you have these the description of it making these giant leaps, which is something that I go into uh, in in volume two. These giant leaps that Bigfoot supposedly can make. Um, it's 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 wild to me. And you know, for for somebody like like me who is interested in the intersectionality of a lot of these things, um, anybody who's familiar with my work knows that I'm pretty much convinced that uh, the modern contact experience and the the ancient fairy lore, especially of Western Europe, are very much linked, if not describing the exact same thing. And here you have Bigfoot linked with fairies, and you've also got Bigfoot in the 1970s UFO flap. I mean, I have a whole chapter on you know UFOs and Bigfoot, or you know UFOs, extraterrestrials, and Bigfoot. And then you have fairies connected with the dead and aliens connected with the dead. And it's just, it all, it all, you, you start to see this web of, of different things branching out. And, and, and for so long, you know, cryptozoal flesh and blood advocates, we call it the, I coined the term flesh and blood hypothesis. So F and BH. Yes. <laughs> that's introduced a, early in the book. Yes. Yeah. To, to, get, to give a counterbalance to the shorthand of the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But you have, you have, you have all these F and BH people who have been wanting to um who've been wanting to say who've been wanting to like separate bigfoot away from that that web of, of different connections and i honestly i think it's i think there's a degree of intellectual dishonesty involved in that you're just not i mean if if you are just collecting reports and you're just collecting people who see roadside crossings and a hunter who sees a bigfoot walking away from him and you don't make these connections that's fine but if you're really trying to get to the bottom of this and you're not addressing this stuff it, it starts to look like willful ignorance after a certain point 
that's, but, a, that's a strong statement. Sorry. Well, <laughs> it, no, it's, I, but the, I, I, this I is changing. It's, it's too much. There's just there's too much. There's, there's a point where there's just too much to to look away and to say, eh, we're going to throw out all the weird stuff. Yeah. yeah and when, well, what effect do you think this have of, of bringing all this stuff in? Will it, you know, fracture the Bigfoot community? Will it make things more, you know, uh, my idea when reading your book and when Josh first told me about it is great. You know what? This is going to bring this out into the front and people can start talking about it. And um, hopefully it won't become orthodoxy because anything that becomes or- orthodoxy stops evolving. But right. um, do you think that this is hopefully a, a direction for for Bigfoot researchers now because um, that, that's the other thing about science and ufology and all these different areas. It's almost, it's like the uh, um, uh, structure of scientific revolutions that people, among other things, um, the old guard has to die away before new ideas come up. And do you think that's what's going on? You either die away or become inactive. And it's just because of an attrition rate that, that these ideas are coming up or is there something more going on? I'm not trying to drum up you know, artificial controversy, but I, I, maybe I'm speaking for Tim. Maybe I'm not, but I, I will say that this is the first time I've written a book. I got into a little bit of this with, with reframing the debate, but that was just an essay, but this is the first book that I've written where I'm like, Oh, this is really going to piss some people off. I really have that feeling Tim. Yeah. I, I, I think if, I think what happens with this, hopefully, hopefully if nothing else happens, Hopefully, the the flesh and blood folks can stop saying weird stuff rarely ever happens, because we filled two books with account after account after account after account of weird stuff that happens along with Bigfoot. So if that's all that happens, I, I think I'd be happy. I think I'd be happy if they if because very often you hear I hear this a lot still now when we talk about the three toed tracks they'll say well that rarely ever happens. Oh, no, 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 no. It happened. It happened a lot. And it happened all over the country. Right. Uh, they, they would say previously, I, I would hear often, well, it only happened in Pennsylvania and, and around Boggy Creek. It never really happened anywhere else. Oh, no, 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 no. It happened everywhere, including the, the Pacific Northwest. Um, mm-hmm. they, there are plenty of three-toed tracks around to talk about. I mean, and we, we get into that a little bit in this book. And I, I think a lot more in the next. Right, Josh? Yeah. Uh, so three-toed tracks, you, you can't help but address them i think across both volumes specifically oddly uh, anomalous tracks are covered in volume two we've got you know tracks ranging from two toes all the way up through you know literally 11 toes on one foot you've got trackways that end you've got uh you know trackways comprised all entirely of one foot (laughs) like all left foot or all right foot right Um, right just just some really weird anomalies um but yet to to, to yeah now to it starts to point, sound like those devonshire demon or thing whatever the the, mm-hmm. the tracks uh, that go oh, through yeah, walls the, the, and over yeah. roofs and all that yeah the the devil's footprints yeah, yeah. um so uh so yeah to to, to tim's point yeah the, the commonly argued thing is that three-toed footprints only occur in like pennsylvania and i sort of break out break apart how that that that's that's a misnomer there's also a sort of a misnomer in, at large and there's some of the old guard that have made this claim is that um east coast bigfoot are weird and west coast bigfoot are animals and that's just that's just patently not true if, if you look into the if you look into the data there's plenty of cases from the west coast that are just as weird as some of the stuff in the, from the east coast granted pennsylvania is bug nut insane <laughs> but but um but uh there's plenty of oddness from California all the way up through the Pacific Northwest. Um 
you know, and, and as back, circling back around to that, that three-toed thing, it's amazing to me how many times you will find in literature, especially talking about fairies, talking about witches of these dis, these entities that are described as having the body of an ape with the feet of a chicken or something like that. And if you look at it... Oh, yeah, you know, well, you chickens... have a chapter on that in the book, actually, the different things, that the different entities that are just combinations. Of the, the, what is it called? Goetia Squatch, I think you called it. Yeah, Goetia Squatch, these chimeric entities. But, you know... I, I think it's interesting that if you look at like, you know, a chicken's foot, technically chickens have four feet, but that back foot is sort of, you know, almost oh. looks like a foot pad. So you get this, what looks like a toes, three you foot. mean? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Chickens don't have three feet. <laughs> toes. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe chickens at three mile Island have yeah. <laughs> three feet. Um, but yeah, you have chickens with, with chickens have four toes and, uh, but that back toe sort of ends up looking kind of like a foot. And, you know, you read these stories of like a fairy queen who would transform herself into an ape with chicken's feet. And you think of, and then you think about these Bigfoot that leave behind these three, three toed tracks. And you're like, well, that kind of does look like a bird's foot, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, again, to your point, another thing that people want to try to sort of, I don't even know how people who are into cryptozoology can justify thinking that there is any sort of biological precedent for things like Dogman, although we don't talk too much about Dogman in the book. We do. Yeah, you bring it up. You bring up the loop guru and and, and Dogman as well. Yeah. We get there circuitously through werewolf lore. Um, Yeah. But uh, but um, yeah, Bat Squatch, which is Bigfoot with bat wings and Sheep Squatch, which is bigfoot with a sheep's head the most famous of which was probably the fort worth monster there's just there's There's one out in california too really the billowack Uh, dairy monster was a was a bigfoot with a ram's head yeah anything you can find these sort of goatman archetypes you know around places and oftentimes interestingly oddly enough they're often associated with these crybaby bridges where these bridges where supposedly a baby was tossed into a river you know Mm. years ago and you can still hear the baby crying again we're not we don't necessarily need to go into the the prevalence of of baby cries and all sorts of the other explained phenomena from ghosts to UFOs to Bigfoot. But, um, but uh, the the whole, you know, the the sheep squatch and and bat squatch, like there is zero, there is zero evidence in the fossil record for these things. At least you can sort of, you can sort of weasel your way there for, for there being evidence for Bigfoot, you know, for like via like, you know, things like Gigantopithecus and Australopithecus, even though both I think are poor matches for Bigfoot. Can I get name in from Tim? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. um, <laughs> but, but yeah, at least there are there are things in the fossil record that look like right. Bigfoot, you know. Yeah, yeah but no, they're, nothing they're, like yeah. these other things, which <clears throat> probably leans towards more my idea that um, people are filling in details when whatever is presented to them doesn't give them any details. It's just mm-hmm. some weirdness, and to their minds, it's like okay, it's a person with a goat's head. Um, and that's it's, what they remember. I don't know if you had a camera there, if you got a picture of a person with a goat's head, but that's their memory and that's what's going on. And at that point, your your objective subjective does not have a very clear dividing line anymore, which I think you encounter a lot in, in what you wrote about in the book. Oh, I, I would totally agree. It's, it's like a, it's like a, uh, a less insanity-inducing version of Lovecraft, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same idea of like, oh, I'm seeing something, I, I don't know what it is, so my brain's going to scream something at me. But, um, you know, to, to the point that you were making, the, 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 where that falls in the book is in my discussion of witches, because they, they sort of do have some uh, some entities in Goetia that you can find there being sort of a, a comparison point for with these sh- sheep squatch and bat squatch and even, you know... Uh, Dogman, these sort of big. Some people say that dogman, which is basically a fancy word of saying wolf, werewolves, but but you're a cryptozoologist, so you don't want to say werewolf. Um, oh no no no! Dog, 
Dogman, some people say, well, you know, Dogman is just a Bigfoot, but he's got like a baboon muzzle. And and so, but these three different things, you know, Dogman. It's on, on the Southern dog accent man, for it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a Southerner. I can make, I can make, I can make fun of Southerners. Go um, ahead. But, uh, but, you know, Dogman, Bat Squatch, and Sheep Squatch, you can find sort of vague analogs for in, 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 in these grimoires of different spirits. And, it gives me pause. I'm not saying that's what it is, and I'm not saying that any of these comparison points are are answers throughout this entire book in either of our chapters um, that we have. But uh, it, it is something that gives you pause and sort of makes you step step back and, and try to reframe the way that you're thinking about these things as opposed to being some sort of flesh and blood creature. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that don't expect at the end of this book that Josh and I are going to say Bigfoot is an interdimensional creature. Oh, or, no, no, you know, don't. Big, yeah. Bigfoot is an alien that was dropped here by this a UFO pilot. The soft focus uh, I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we kind of stay very agnostic, even even on the quantum thing, which I think was very wise. Um, starting out, we said we're not going to talk about it because a we're not quantum scientists. We don't know that much about it, and it's it's uh, yeah. the people who are using you know quantum theory to try to explain Bigfoot. I mean, more power to them, but uh, we're not qualified to do that. Yeah. Also, yeah. it opens up a can of worms that the 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 one can one of the cans you didn't want in there because it it might uh, dilute the rest of the stuff you're talking about. Specifically, yeah. You know, if I'm ever going to write about something I don't know about, I'm really hesitant because I'm afraid of sticking my foot in my mouth about you know it's like well this means this it's like well actually no if you look at like these five studies that you didn't look at you've made an erroneous <laughs> conclusion so. There's there's a Richard I believe it's Richard Feynman quote that I I think I've talked about. On radio, he's got a lot of great words. It's a, uh, it's it, if you think you understand quantum physics, you probably don't understand quantum physics or something to that extent. Uh, yeah, you almost have to be soft yeah. focus in how you understand quantum physics because it's so um, not, it's so counterintuitive. Yeah, <laughs> Just like yeah, the I mean, stuff yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. True, true. I mean, you know, I'm, and I'm not saying there couldn't be some sort of quantum element to this stuff i'm just saying that's not my i'm that's not what we did and that's not my area of expertise um i i consider myself primarily a folklorist and and i always say i've heard people in the bigfoot community use folklore in a very very dismissive way oh that's just folklore you know very very as if it's yeah just like somebody saying that's a myth and myth does not is not is not a negative term it shouldn't be right exactly uh as a, I'm a traditional folk musician, you know, as well as all these other things, I've, I've had a very traditional kind of folk music um, thing where I learned folk songs in a very traditional way. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of value to these things that are passed in the folk process. And yeah, they change over time a little bit, but the essential truth is there. And folklore is not fiction. Now, it can be fiction. They can be fictional accounts, but it's not the same thing as fiction in that there's there's lessons being passed down. Yeah, And while... Some of this folklore may seem particularly outrageous or a little more ridiculous. There are lessons in there basically that are, that are teaching us how to deal with the other, how to deal with these things, or at least the ways that our ancestors dealt with them. We'll say that. Yeah, they're giving you a framework. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's very, very important to look at folklore in terms of this stuff and, and to apply it to it, it and say, look, this is what they're saying in folklore, and this is what our, our ancestors said about their wild people. And this is how it matches up with what we're what we're talking about today. So, you know, I, I stress 
in almost every interview I do that folklore is not fiction and should not be taken as such. A lot of a lot of poisonous plants that we learned about, you know, through folk songs and folk tales and stuff, and a lot of plants that healed us. A lot of good information came down through the folk process. They call it ancient wisdom. Yeah, amen. <laughs> <laughs> I had a question come up very early in the book, and either either or both of you can answer the, this, and I think it's an important question when you deal with any of this um, paranormal stuff, is what's the difference between imaginal and imaginary? And why is that important? Take it, Josh. I think you just sort of addressed that in your folklore thing, actually. You're, you're uh, just, I mean, which reminded yeah. me of the question. Yeah, so imaginary is existing only in the imagination, and imaginal is is pertaining to the imagination. This is sort of like a, a Patrick Harper concept. I was going to say this. Um, yeah, this gets into you know, the demonic reality kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so, so, so the, the way that I would qualify it, and I know that some people who think that there's you know an objective reality behind Bigfoot. Again, I do too. So don't um, don't really. Yeah, just not th- just not in the way we think. Um, is that um, Patrick Harper says that there are things that are patently false that can be the truest things that you've ever seen. So you can watch, <laughs> you, you can watch a film that has a couple falling in love and having a life and then they have problems and they have a divorce and it can be the most true to life thing that you have ever seen as a piece of art, but yes. it never really existed, but it is a hundred percent true. And, uh, and I think that is sort of a good encapsulation of the difference between imaginary and imaginal. That would be imaginal, I would think, um, in, in terms that it, it embodies – it's kind of like the difference between fantasy and archetype, I think, is another good way yeah, to was, Yeah, it. I was going to actually bring up the archetype thing and, that's yeah. a, and um, how, how that relates and how we, we – we, like somebody says, well, that's that's a, a folktale or a story or, you know, that's imaginary or whatever, and I – and and when they put that down and saying that, um, you know, religious studies and folklore and all that have nothing to do with this stuff, it's like, no, it's very relevant because you have to figure out how people categorize things culturally, subconsciously and all that before you can start to pick apart where it might be coming from. You know what I mean? Right. No, exactly. If you think artists are useless, then stop listening to music, stop reading books and stop watching movies. <laughs> <laughs> slow clap yeah slow clap yeah I if you think witness uh uh testimony is useless but bye <laughs> yeah because <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, what else really do you example. have you know for for yeah, ufos exactly. and bigfoot 95 percent of what you have is witness testimony yep and, and this is this is a sort of uh you know drum that i like to bang a lot is that uh if, if you think that anecdotes and witness testimony don't matter then Go ahead and tell, you know, go ahead and ignore half the people who have mental issues because a lot of our things, you look at something like I talked about in Thieves of the Night, Capgar delusion, right? It's this idea that um, that suddenly everyone around you has been replaced with an imposter, right? Mm. It It's appeared in people across cultures. It's appeared in people who are otherwise normally functioning humans. But because we don't have any other evidence besides their testimony, I guess it means it's not real. Well, no. There's something there's something to that being real, a, a, a solid, a gigantic chunk of the stuff from the from the DSM is a lot of those a lot of psychological conditions are completely based upon anecdotal testimony. 
you know, but 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 there are things that are shared between different people. So it implies that there is some sort of objective reality for these different conditions. But, you know, sometimes brain scans don't don't work this way. I'm like, you know, we can all admit that gambling addiction is real, but you can't quantify that in any way. Besides, the person says, I have a gambling problem. And look at me. I can't stop myself. I'm compelled to do it. Yeah. And then you've so, got you've got the evidence of their empty bank account. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 ex exactly. So I, I think that's, you know, and I think that archetypes are a really good way to to to. To, to, to talk about the difference between the imaginary and the imaginal, you know, archetypes being imaginal, um, that, uh, you know, you, you can't deny something that occurs across cultures in such a strong, consistent way can be imagine imaginary. It's just, it's just not, um, no, no, people are like, Oh, you're being what wishy-washy. And I'm, I, I'm not, I, I think that personally, for no, me, I'm soft focused listening to things that people say and taking them seriously. <laughs> Well, I, I, I hope so. Um, you know, I... Um, There's a huge area in here of, like, you know, what's in somebody's mind and what is the objective reality. <clears throat> and when you look at this weird stuff, it seems like that line just completely blurs if you start looking to at it closely. You know, witness uh, Tim's uh, transformation from f flesh and blood to what you guys have written about. Well, and... and and I and at the risk of sounding, I know that I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound like I'm being I'm being sort of snobbish or something. But cryptozoology doesn't doesn't tread in these waters ever, you know. I you know I, I it's just like I said for a while, you know, for years I've been saying that cryptozoology is going to be the last to the table when it comes to actually embracing what what uh, you know the 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 uh, implications of consciousness research and psi research. It's it's the same thing. They just they they don't. Cryptozoological studies don't ever really tread in this water. I think people like Jim Brandon are probably the closest to people who have sort of thought about this in this sense. Hey. I mean, even even in uh, George P. Hansen's Trickster in the Paranormal, he gives a little bit of lip service to Bigfoot, but he doesn't really dig in on how Bigfoot is an expression of that trickster archetype. I do. It's in volume two, um, <laughs> but but uh, but you know, and I, I think that's I think it's I think it's 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 a real. Um, there's a real deficit in in terms of studying something like Bigfoot that that you know hopefully this will at least attempt to start the conversation on. Cryptozoologists are ill prepared for this because I mean very simply we're talking about a wild man, not a wild animal, and we need, as I say in the book, like a crypto anthropologist. We need to look at it in that lens if you want to put a scientific label on the people who research it, hmm. uh, because. Looking for an animal, looking for you know some lost gorilla, it's not working, and it it doesn't it doesn't work, and and they've been doing it you know since whatever, whenever the boy I'm bad with Bigfoot trivia in the 1950s, whenever they found the Bigfoot prints out in California, and then you know they've been hardcore looking for an ape ever since, and uh, we've not gained any ground in that department. Hmm, so funny, like UFO research. <laughs> Let's keep hammering on the ETH and then never finding, never getting past a whole bunch of reports. Mm -hmm. Really? Oh, there, there's some fantastic casts. I mean, unbelievably detailed cast. I mean, you know, things like dermal ridges and right. and mid tarsal breaks. These are these are things that that certainly something real stepped in the mud. You know, hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing is anybody who anybody who thinks that there's nothing to Bigfoot, the first thing that I will do is I will press a copy of uh, Jeff Meldrum's Bigfoot Legend Meets Science into their hands and say, look at this because the science is really good on this. And you know, there's yeah. there's stuff like, like leaving aside the you know, fact that Meldrum is a flesh and blood 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. But 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 he's he's done. But he's he he feels that he feels that sort of um he feels that I'm trying to think of a similar figure in ufology who sort of laid that groundwork. He feels that sort of Heineck gap. I guess. Yeah, I know. That's you just know, what that's I was about to say. Let's let's stop arguing whether something's going on because something actually is going on. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and, and I think it, it feels that uh, it feels that uh, it it fills that void and and it, it does a great service for us. But. Now that we've established that there's a reality to this and that there's some really compelling physical aspects to it, let's look at it, it, let's look at alternate ways to interpret this, especially alongside how weird our own reality is getting, how weird our own science has gotten since, you know, since the Patterson Gimlin film. I mean, that was what, 62? Is that right? Or is it 60? 68, no, 68. So like, yeah, think about think about all the advances in science and the way that we understand the, our reality different than we did in 68. Yeah, well, I, under, but, I think but, our but, understanding goes hand in hand with how something appears. You know what I mean? Yeah. Our, our yeah, no, per- I, perception I, of it is going to change the quote-unquote external reality of it, especially for something like this, which is, you know, you can't, you can't leave a trap out and catch a Bigfoot, so it's going to be a lot less, um, it's going to be a lot more squirrely. <laughs> your, yeah, your image yeah. and, and the, and the quote unquote reality of it is going to be very squirrely, just like any of the, uh, anything ephemeral like this. Yep, couldn't have put it better. Absolutely. Um, oh, there's a good chapter on, uh, and this really stuck out for me, Bigfoot connected with the realm of the dead, which really it piqued my interest because of Whitley Strieber's thing, where his wife said, uh, Ann Strieber said, um, about the UFO uh, abduction scenario. She says, this is intimately connected with the dead. So how does that manifest in the Bigfoot lore? Well, um, there are some people that will tell you that Bigfoot is never interpreted as a spirit being. And that's from what I can tell, that's if, if you just look at it in terms of like, let's just look at the, the tribes that call it something that looks like Sasquatch, like physically, like the, the word looks like Sasquatch. That might be true. But if, if you look at like large hairy hominids throughout North America, that's absolutely not true. I mean, you, you find uh, certain uh, in certain examples, these these sort of large, hairy, man-like creatures preside over the realm of the dead. They cast judgment on the dead. They're described as ghosts. They're described as, uh, you know, cannibal spirits. Um, you find this in a couple of different uh, Native American cultures, which, you know, not to speak of any... Native Americans are not a monolithic culture. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to, to sort of streamline the conversation here. Yeah. Um, well, there are, you, you, the best you could say in our categorization is they're shamanic cultures. Yes, probably, yeah. Partially, um, anyway. And and you find some, you find some correlation to this in 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 Western Europe. Uh, not always called Bigfoot, but things that sort of do the same things that Bigfoot do, and uh, and and sort of ex- you know exemplify that same sort of uh, same sort of same sort of attributes that you see. There is a curious connection between Bigfoot and in cemeteries, Bigfoot and burial grounds. Um, and I think even the flesh and blood people will acknowledge this, you know, Bigfoot are often seen in cemeteries. Bigfoot are often seen around burial grounds. And of course, you know, there's a, there's a data point that doesn't get talked about in ufology a lot. The Bigfoot are that, uh, that UFOs are often seen around uh, cemeteries and, and graveyards as well. Um, uh, which is, you know, but, but, um, but there's also a very strong tradition, um, you know, especially in Europe, of uh, of describing hairy man-like creatures as hairy ghosts. Um, you know, you can in in that 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 belief uh, transferred over here in America. And Tim did you know, being the rip the being the uh, 
uh, pit bull researcher that he is, <laughs> dug up a lot, dug up a lot of old newspaper clippings talking about you know these these hairy ghosts and people like seeing things and and they didn't ever say you know. Very rarely do they say gorilla or monkey or ape. They describe them as a, a ghost covered in hair. Um, you know. Yeah, I, I, if you go to European folklore, you know they talk about big hairy things. You know, wild men essentially. Uh, give them yeah. various names. Green man, etc., etc. You would be hard pressed to find anyone in European folklore says, you know, the folklore saying that this is just a natural creature. Now, you, you know, it does happen with Native American folklore. Some of it. But I, I would say it's probably in in the in the uh, in, well, in the minority. And I would say it's even even more vanishingly small to find a Native American tradition that says yes, it is a, an, an actual creature, and no, it doesn't have any sort of supernatural abilities, right. supernormal yeah, abilities. Bingo. Like yeah. that's vanishingly small. Even when they say it's even when they say it's a, it's a real flesh and blood creature, it still has these you know these incredible abilities to disappear or to control people's minds or to you know do all sorts of different things, because bigfoot bigfoot possession is also a thing. Uh, it sort of dovetails with this topic of uh, of bigfoot and ghosts. But uh, you know there are people who are using to varying degrees of success um, who are using big who are using ghost boxes on bigfoot hunts, which is just like you know. That yeah, that work. would have seemed kind of obvious, but I didn't think it was that obvious, I guess, until I actually read it in your book. That's the first time I'd actually heard of it. What are, what are they doing with them, and what results are they getting? I've I think was... Oh, I didn't know you had, Tim. Yeah, I sat, I sat in the middle of a tree structure. Uh, and well, a tree structure? A you mean an anomalous structure that you don't think a person made? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, sat there and started asking questions, and... I didn't get much response except for the the one question I asked. I said, "What it, what are these for? What are, what are these used for?" And the one clear answer I got all day out of it was it came back. It just said spiritual. So very very interesting. Hmm. I think you. you I'm Which sure you told will, me that at some point, but I, I'd forgotten I would that. <laughs> that. That that kind of dovetails with some things I was writing and some things that I write in volume two as regards tree structures. So. I can absolutely could have influenced that myself. Which yeah, yeah. my my idea about a ghost box is that it's yeah. it's very self reflexive, but that doesn't make it, it useless. Right, bingo, exactly. Uh, to me, yeah, maybe that came from me. Doesn't make it any less interesting to me. Like I will fully admit, yeah, maybe that came from me, but still a very very interesting thing. There's a story that I pilfered from uh, from Sasquatch Chronicles. I mean, yeah, the, it, there's so much of, of of Wes's podcast all over this book, but um. But uh, there was a story that he talked about in Sasquatch Chronicles of this father-son duo who were into hunting Bigfoot, and they had seen Bigfoot in Michigan, and they went on a road trip to uh, Tombstone. And before they left, a psychic said, Bigfoot's going to follow you there. And they're like, okay, whatever that means. And uh, they did a they did a ghost box session in the Birdcage Theater in Tombstone. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. basically, long story short, the uh, the spirits were saying, you brought something with you. And they're like, what did we bring? And they're like, big, big guy, big hairy guy. And they're like, oh. Uh, so they actually asked the Bigfoot spirit to leave the the bird the uh, birdcage theater did I say bird box theater no you said birdcage bird okay. yeah <laughs> which is what it is yeah yeah um and uh, so they said please you know please this you know this really gruff voice they asked it to leave and all the other spirits sort of came through this this ghost box and said oh thank you for doing that supposedly you know as 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 much as they can. Um, and they went back to their car, and there was a big steel pole behind their car that had suddenly appeared there, which actually kind of has shades of of the closest thing that I can call my Bigfoot experience, where something was put behind a tire of my car that I had to move. But uh, 
but they had to move this giant pole because you know obviously they hadn't it hadn't been there when they got there because they said they would have driven over it and that evening at the campground both the father and the son independent of each other uh confirmed the next morning that uh you know one of them said without saying the other one that they had seen bigfoot and he's like oh you saw that too <laughs> bigfoot standing outside their outside their camper so you know it's just stuff like that shouldn't shouldn't make any sense in, in a, in a flesh and blood model. It just, it just doesn't. Sorry. Well, you know. obviously the, the Bigfoot peed on their bumper and followed them from, from, <laughs> from, from Michigan, from Michigan to Arizona <laughs> <laughs> with, 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 with Kerouac. <laughs> yeah. And hopped a train. Um, so yeah, th- there are these weird, you know, there are these weird ghost Bigfoot, you know, dovetails. I, I, I have a chapter just dedicated to ghosts, but, um, you know, Tim's chapter on women in white is sort of a ghost chapter in and of itself. Yeah, well, maybe Tim can describe that because that's the one I didn't actually read in any detail. And at the beginning of the conversation here, Josh said, well, that's probably the most important chapter. <laughs> no, well, no, again, to, to sort of clarify what we talked about off air, and I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to say this. I was, Tim, mm-hmm. this is before we even started working on the book, wasn't it, that you mentioned this, this similarity to me, to me? Yeah, yeah, I started yeah. getting several cases and and i was and, i was like i was like tim you're full of it there is no correlation here <laughs> I, I, I didn't say that i was like huh you know i said oh, that's interesting but like in terms really? of me actually yeah i did i didn't believe it at all because i just i didn't see the evidence for it but this is a thread that tim i can honestly say that you said greg that nobody has ever everything somebody else has talked about before tim i don't think anybody has ever made this connection before in in the written record of of anomalies, so I gotta give you a giant slap on the back for it because this is this is it blew my mind when I, when it, when he started really pulling on this and, and seeing everything that came out of it. Well, it started with accounts, like it's just started with like cases. I started. I'm a fiend for Bigfoot cases. I just I just love hearing witness accounts. Uh, that's why I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Sasquatch Chronicles for that reason. He just he just has witnesses on. They tell their stories. Uh, you know, whatever it is, they come on and tell it. And, uh, you know, I just love hearing these, but I started, you know, getting a couple of these accounts I found around where people were saying, yeah, I saw Bigfoot creatures. And I saw this weird lady who was dressed in white or something similar to that. And I think I started talking about it a little bit on my podcast and I had a guy, uh, call me up and he said, I had this encounter in a place called, uh, white rocks and right down from there is a place called pond bank. And, uh, Come meet me out. I'll tell you my encounter. So I, I met him out there and he showed me where he had this. He actually had like two separate Bigfoot encounters. One was very much the sort of wilderness geist uh, kind of encounter where he, he didn't see anything, but he he was tapping on a rock and got some response and and heard some footsteps walking around and some tree knocks and so forth. And then ended up actually getting uh, roared at, um, but never saw anything. And then another time he came to the area and uh, saw some some what he termed blacker than black creatures, which is yet another weird Bigfoot thing. But um, it's also in the ghost literature, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but he took me to this place, Pond Bank, which was less than a mile from these these Bigfoot encounters he had. And he said, "I want to tell you a story about this." He said, "There's supposed to be a ghost here. It's a it's a woman in a white dress. They call her the White Lady." of pond bank and he said that you know there's folklore with it she supposedly you know drowned her baby there and and so forth it's, it's a small huh, pond that's an archetype uh, as well yeah oh yeah yeah la llorona uh, comes from that yeah uh, bingo yep yeah she's she's very she's very much like pennsylvania's la llorona um 
And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Here's another woman in white, like very close proximity to Bigfoot. Let me see what else I can dig up here. And I, I just started digging. And then I started just, I, I don't outright ask people, but I do, when I do Bigfoot stuff, I said, what else weird is around here? And another fellow, I went on his case, uh, typical Bigfoot stuff. He stops me before he leaves. He says, you know what else? I, he's like, my house is haunted. And then he starts <laughs> showing me photographs of, of these, you know, spirits and orbs and stuff that he's taken. Yeah. Some of which he said were, were bikers. He's like, look, there's biker ghosts around here. <laughs> and he handed, he handed it to me. They look very much like, like Bigfoot to me. Like he was saying that, you know, big hairy guys. I was, I was thinking, wow, you look like Bigfoot ghosts to me. But, um, they look like Bigfoot one researchers. The, <laughs> one, one of the things, <laughs> one of the things he showed me was a, a full body photo that he'd taken in the mirror that showed a full body apparition of a woman in a white dress. And I, and I, I wanted him to say it. I said, what is that? What does that look like to you? And he wouldn't say it because he was a ghost guy. And I guess that in the, in the ghost hunting world, the, uh, it's, it's very like kind of looked down upon because quote, everyone sees a woman in white, which I would argue is probably a very important thing, uh, that people are seeing so many women in white, but I guess it's, it's kind of dismissed in at least the, the ghost hunting world that he was involved in. So he didn't want to say it, but eventually I got him to say it. He's like, Oh, it's, she's wearing a white dress. And I said, yeah, interesting. And that really set me off. And then I started digging into the folklore where I could find the stuff. And I, and sure enough, uh, women and white spirits turn up where Bigfoot turn up. Uh, battlefields are a good good uh, example. Of oh, yeah. Both Gettysburg and uh, Chickamauga have women in white and, and Bigfoot sightings. Um, but the, the thing that really like kind of hit home was when I was uh, reading about these white ladies that kind of haunts the royal Austrian families that kind of presage death. They're, they're sort of symbols of death. The, the royal families or anybody in the high families will see this, this lady in white, and that means somebody's going to die and so forth. So here we have another death connection, of course. Yeah. But uh, one of them, they said, was named Bertha. And they said, well, Bertha is, was the medieval name for Perkta who was a sort of Germanic, she's sort of the Germanic equivalent of Baba Yaga. Some people say she's a moon goddess, but I don't think she, I don't think she's quite a goddess. She's more like one of these kind of folkloric figures like Baba Yaga. And uh, I started reading about her and it just all kind of clicked together. Everything just made sense because she is uh, dressed in white. They, they called her the, the uh, bright I forget what the translation was of her name, but something like Bright Lady or something. <clears throat> yeah. But they said she appeared in white. She could appear as an old woman or a beautiful young maiden. Uh, curiously, she had one or both feet were, were giant-sized and took the form <laughs> of, of a swan's foot. Uh-huh. So here we have the three-toed thing that Josh was talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, and she had this retinue that she was accompanied by, which was the the Heimchen, which were the souls of dead children that uh, supposedly she had lured off into the wilderness, and they would take the form of lights. So they appeared as weird lights in the woods, will-o'-wisp lights. And the other were the Perkton, which is a group of hairy wild men that followed Perkta around. And they kind of would go to towns and, and raise hell and throw stones and, and scare people and so forth. So here we have this woman in white, uh, completely absolutely associated with both these anomalous lights and wild men mm -hmm. and it just 
from there, everything just clicked. And I found, you know, account after account, including La Llorona. Uh, I think there's a Finding Bigfoot episode where they attribute the, the screams of uh, that people were saying was the screams of, of that ghost to, uh, you know, I think Bobo says early in the episode, oh, it, we think it's a Bigfoot out there. So, you know, you, you have that uh, to these other various uh, women in white. I mean, folklorically speaking, all over the world, you will have big, hairy, wild men and their significant other in whatever form will be white. And often it's, it's a woman in white. Often it's one of these hag like women or a spirit or, or something. And it just, I haven't found any in Asia yet, but I found them all over Europe. And just again and again, these folklore wild men and their counterpart is a woman. They say who wears white. Mm. But not too much of that in the, in the, uh, at least the North American Bigfoot literature. Is it just suppressed? I think it just, it was so far out there that people haven't been noting it because again, on my investigations, like since I've, I've been kind or of, or the witness was just like, thinking that's too crazy to even admit to a Bigfoot research. Yeah, exactly. Like what else weird do you find here? Yeah. I mean, one account, uh, it's a wonderful witness I talked to. She was probably the best witness I've ever talked to. She's just absolutely open and, and, uh, fantastic, uh, uh, about asking her neighbors, she's very outgoing and just asked her neighbors, like, what else is weird is, is uh, you know, have you seen anything? What have you experienced? And kind of almost had like a, a town hall for me when I, when I went to her place, you know, yeah. all, you know, all of her neighbors over yeah. and they told, told me their stories. Wonderful witness. And again, we, we went out and, you know, there were places in the woods that they were, hunters were afraid to go. And I'm, you know, I'm looking in the woods and doing all the, the normal Bigfoot stuff. And at the end of the day, I said, okay, what else weird has happened here? And she told me about seeing a big black wolf that walked across her property. Her her neighbor, farmer behind her, said he had seen Bigfoot several times. He said uh, he had shot a cougar on on his property. So he had a big cat thing. Yeah. Uh, Where was this? Then, this was in Maryland. Um, There's no cougars in Maryland. Did he did he keep the coug the, the big cat well, that she he shot or did it just she shot it and it ran away? He shot it and said he killed it, but he was so he was afraid he was going to be uh, taken, um, held responsible or arrested by the the uh, game commission. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty legitimate concern. And just as sort of a little bit of a tangent, you know, it, from what I've heard, there is. I mean, my grandfather had what, by all from all appearances, was a black panther on his property of forty acres in the middle of uh, Western North Carolina. And there's so many accounts of people seeing these large cats east of the Mississippi. Technically, they're not acknowledged to be there, but uh, I know in North Carolina, one was hit by a car. Like, there are pictures of this cougar that was hit by a car that, you know, it's, it's unambiguous there was a body, but it was just one that strayed in. You find them in in Michigan and Wisconsin, the upper Midwest, all the time. People are people hit them, but they're always just like a stray cougar that wanders over, you know, I saw uh, that wanders cougar. east. I saw a yeah. cougar two, two days in a row in Maryland. 100% sure what I saw. It was the same time of day. And this was weird because it was 10 a.m. in the morning in the same field two days in a row. So maybe there was something weird about it. But it appeared to me to be a cougar. And, and it was just it was a large cat. And it blew my mind when I saw it two days in a row. The second day, my brother was with me and uh, did not acknowledge it, though. So there may be something that was weird going on there. As I pointed out to him, I was like, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. And he didn't. He was like, just kept driving. He did not want anything to do with it. But but at the that's, same that's time, a familiar I, I, story. Yeah, I, I do think that there are flesh and blood, very mon, quote unquote mundane mountain lions that exist True. In, yeah. in, in breeding populations east of the Mississippi. The 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 generally held consensus is that um, 
that uh, game departments don't want to have to deal with the headache of having to patrol for them and acknowledge them and a- extra protection methods and all that stuff. They just don't want to have to deal with the with the headache and the, and the paperwork, I think, is generally what I've heard. That may yeah, or may not be true, but I, but I know that. Yeah, but, but yeah, there are there are there are, there's unambiguous evidence that these things do make it uh, east of the Mississippi. Yeah. But anyway, the, you know, sorry, real or not, or or, or whatever the case, uh, you know, they also said both these witnesses said their houses were haunted, and both reported seeing women in white. The the, the woman said uh, her husband watched a, this ghostly woman in white walk up their driveway one night, and the the farmer who lived behind him said he was hunting one day in the woods in a tree stand in an area where he had seen Bigfoot previously. And said it was getting near dusk and this woman dressed in a white cloak walked out of the brush, did something on the ground, which he said was a ritual. Oh, that's right. This is in the book. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Left something on the ground, uh, turned around and walked back into the brush. And he he got down out of the tree stand to look at what it was and said she came Came right back back out of the brush, did not pay any attention to him. So she either didn't see him or didn't care that he was there, picked up whatever it was she left on the ground, walked away. He never saw her again. So both, you know, both of these witnesses, besides having Bigfoot uh, encounters, had also had these these women in white. So I think it's just so far out there that people haven't been making the connection, and I think it'll come as we go on further here. I think people start start saying like, oh yeah, not only was there a Bigfoot here, but there's this, you know, this tale of this ghostly woman in white or whatever whatever form it takes. Yeah. Okay. We're almost at two hours here, which doesn't really matter. I don't want to keep you too long. And I've got a couple different questions. One that branches off from that um, is, uh, well, everything we've been talking about. What do you hope is the impact for this? Like, what would you say to Bigfoot researchers or new ones, how they should be conducting or at least changing how they conduct their investigations and what data should they be collecting? Don't ignore the weird stuff. I mean, as I say in the book, how weird is it to see an eight-foot-tall, hair-covered you know, gorilla or man, or <laughs> and then how weird is it to see a UFO? And if you see the the two together, you know, at least acknowledge that. You know, th- don't ignore that. You know, May- maybe they're related, maybe they're not. I can't say they. Are. I, th- I I feel like they are. You know, I I think we've gathered enough weirdness to say that there there's something that connects all this weird stuff. How it's connected, I can't say, but I would at least say, you know, to, to researchers, please don't ignore it. Don't weird wash stuff. Report the whole story, because if you're going to believe the witness who says, I saw an eight foot tall, you know, ape man in the woods in North America, and you're going to throw out the part of their testimony where they said, you know, they went home and their lights flashed on and off and they heard strange voices and 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 so forth, then you're not being honest. You know, you're not really being being honest to the to the phenomenon in general. And you're not helping the witness, Uh, actually, ultimately. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say, you know, don't throw out folklore as fiction. Uh pay attention to what, what our ancestors said. I, I think a, there's a lot of lip service given to, you know, Native American traditions. I think it's absolutely valid to say, like, you know, they were here, you know, thousands and thousands of years before us. We should pay attention to what they say about these things. Absolutely. hundred percent. But it's in folklore all over the world. You can find it everywhere. And the, the consistencies are there when they talk about these things. So I would say do not ignore, you know, folklore, look into it. It's not necessarily fiction. It's the way our ancestors kind of pass down these this knowledge and how they dealt with these things and, and the, their stories of it. And uh, I hope, again, like I said, I hope n- no longer can anyone say this weird stuff with Bigfoot rarely happens because we didn't, this is not exhaustive. We didn't put right. every weird case we could find in the book. 
we just selected a few as to, to you know support our points as we went along. We could have filled ten volumes with weird Bigfoot stories easily. So it's you cannot say that it rarely happens. The weirdness is there. It's, it's it exists alongside the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. How about you, Josh? What, you, what anything to add? But to what uh, Tim just said. Well, I mean, yeah. In addition to everything that Tim said, I would say just just I mean, what he read said and, plus. Well, yeah, yeah. What he said plus, you know, read read stuff that you disagree with. Read stuff that seems completely unrelated. Um, it's the same thing that I've been, you know, banging on all the UFO Twitter neophytes for before I finally got fed up and left. Is just like avail yourself of the stuff that a you don't agree with and b that uh that that just is is folkloric and seems kind of silly because you never know where you're going to find those connections and i think that these these all sorts of these phenomena whatever they might be you know fairies witches ghosts uh bigfoot ufo's you know water monsters like monsters they've been with us for basically as long as that we've been around and there's always something in some other source that you just you know that you never know that you're going to find you might i mean there's there's a actually it's a really great example there's a, there's a book called um let me get this right i want to get this right um i believe it's called the long walk um no it's not that long walk um not the stephen king long walk um but there's a there's a there's a book that's about a uh a prisoner of war who escapes uh, the Himalayas, and it's it's a it's it's a, it's a true story. It's a biographical story, and it's not about Bigfoot. But there's a paragraph where he talks about him and his comrades escaping from this camp, and they run into these two large hairy hominids that like stare at him, mm-hmm. and he's like, "It was a really weird moment." And it's just like a two paragraphs in this book that's a true story. So you never know where you're going to find those little nuggets like that. So just, just you know, just try to look into everything. Again, I think it's especially important to look at stuff that you don't agree with. Like, I I have a hundred different books, not a hundred different books, but I have a significant portion of my of my library over here that I'm looking at. That's stuff that's in that real nuts and bolts materialist UFO camp, and that's not what I ascribe to right now. But I still think it's important to know to know all to know as much as much about that as I can. And if I can do that then you can do that about the weird stuff about the woo stuff and you can, you know, educate yourself on that as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you, you refer to quite a bit to volume two in the, in, in volume one right now. And, uh, so it looks like a lot of that will be more theory, more theory based. And what do we do about this? And what are the, what are the implications of this? Is that true? And also when, when, when do, what can we expect that volume? Um, yeah, so so volume two is we sort of it sort of became apparent that the 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 topics were divided into what I would like to call folklore and evidence. So even though there's plenty of you know obviously there's plenty of Bigfoot cases in volume one, um, it really was leaning a lot more into these folkloric texts. And volume two is a lot more about like the things that people are reporting. Oh, okay. Again, you can't talk about yes. Yeah, so, so you can't talk about you can't talk about the stuff that we talk about with folklore without saying, well, these are the things that people are reporting, but a yeah, lot because of, a it's lot in of the volume, literature. It's in the, I mean, it's in, it's in the database. So, you know, acknowledge yeah. it. Yeah. A lot of volume two is pulling stuff apart. Like, you know, three, three, you know, three toed tracks. Well, the explanation is that they're rare and they only happen in certain parts of the country and that it must be syndactally. It must be toes fusing together. Well, why does that argument fall apart? Um, right. What does also what does reminds that me like? of dinosaur footprints, which may be another thing. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, so the, the, the chapters that are slated for volume two are about the anomalous lights, which again, not saying that I'm not saying that any of this isn't in volume one. It's just chapters that are dedicated to it. Yeah. So, um, anomalous lights, uh, 
vocalizations and mimicry because Bigfoot can apparently uncannily speak English. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even get into that. I didn't even know about yeah. that till maybe five or six years ago when somebody described it to me off the record. So, <laughs> um, but also, but also looking at like you know how that again that is reflected in a lot of in a lot of folklore and stuff. Um, uh, you know, you can look at you can look at uh, some of the samurai chatter, and, and it sounds a lot like barbarous words that are used in magical incantations. That was the Ren Collier observation. Um, when you say samurai uh, chatter, if people haven't read it, it means that's what people think it sounds like. Almost when I read that, it says it sounds like like John Belushi doing the uh, samurai whatever. Yeah, yeah. You can listen to the Sierra sounds. It's it's a really I don't know if you've ever heard them, Greg, but it's a really it's a Ron Moorhead recording. Uh, sort of. I yeah, recorded in the 1960s, yeah. I think, yeah, in the Sierra yeah. Nevada mountains in California. Yeah, yeah, early 70s. Yeah. Early yeah. 70s. I'm sorry. Um, altered states of consciousness, which I don't think anybody has really dove into altered states of consciousness in Bigfoot. Um, which I'm excited to bring that to the table. <laughs> Hex signs. So this the, these stick structures that Tim is talking about. Those get their their own dedicated chapter. Yeah. Uh, you know, anom- anomalous footprints and anomalous trackways get their own separate chapters. Uh, Tim has a chapter on disappearing Bigfoot evidence, and uh, I I dive into a George P. Hansen sort of inter- inspired interpretation of Bigfoot as trickster archetype and how the uh, a lot of these the famous coaxes how they exemplify uh, the, the ideas put forth in Trickster and the Paranormal. And then we have two case studies of, uh, of uh, two individuals that have just had just a, you know, a dog pile of weirdness uh, on them. So that's, that's what's slated for volume two. Now, okay. when that's coming out, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Tim, that's, 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 that's your turn to take that. I, I'd like to do it at the end of this year. Get it I'm in time for the Christmas rush. I would like to do it for that. But but uh, you know our best laid plans with these have have been foiled again and again and again. But that's that's what I would like. That's that's my sort of uh, target date. Okay. I mean, assuming assuming we all exist by the end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> I, after the world ends, we'll talk about this. I I hate to keep you too much longer, but if, when um, Josh brought up the uh, thing about hoaxing, nobody likes to talk about this. But in the paranormal community. Um, hoaxing is an intimate part of what goes on. In fact, sometimes you have yeah. to hoax and fake things to make things actually happen. How much of oh, this yeah. is part of the UFO? I mean, I'm sorry, part of the Bigfoot um, research uh, uh, effort? A ridiculous so, number of, of researchers yeah. get eventually tied to uh, some sort of hoax or some sort of like... No, I mean, I mean that it's an intimate part of it and it has to be there to make the whole ecosystem work <laughs> in a way. No, I, I mean, th- those are two subheadings in my, in my, my trickster chapter of the next book are, uh, uh, fake it till you make it and make it till you fake it. Those two. Those oh, okay. two I, I'm sorry to interrupt I mean, you, Tim. Uh, so I, I think that the, uh, the, the most, um, the most prominent example is probably the Paul, is Paul Freeman who, uh, had has had numerous people come out to his or had new had had past tense because he's passed away. Numerous uh, researchers come out to his um, to his to his sites of research, and he would show them. So he would show them these tracks that were just a little bit too perfect and too in areas that seemed too perfect. And he was dismissed as a hoaxer, but at the same time, he's captured some of what people think is some of the best you know footage of of, of Bigfoot. So it's and of course you know the whole pattern. Some, uh, some very interesting hair finds separately. Yeah, <laughs> true, true. Yeah. Yeah, so it's intimately connected, and people can't really, you know, you can't that that is the um, that is the bathwater that needs to be there with the baby. You can't really throw it out, and people don't like that. 
Um, but yeah. that just, just yeah. goes to show how this weird stuff is not, it will not conform to categories. I would agree 100%. 100%. Thanks so much, both of you, for spending over two hours with me on this. I hope I asked some questions that showed I actually read most of the book and uh, brought up some stuff that normally doesn't come up. I'm probably, you, you know, all the shows you've been on, you've probably talked about this at length and in different ways. But to have it all here in one one place and uh, bring me and, and anybody listening up to speed on what, well, I don't know about the newest, but at least the most interesting part of Bigfoot research is right now. I thank you both for that. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it, Greg. Since Tim has not been on the show before, he gets to pick the music at the end. And if you want me to send, yes. if you want to send me one of your compositions or you email that to me or Dropbox it to me and I'll put it at the end of the interview. All right. I can do that. Okay. Uh, what's the song? Oh, you don't know what you're going to send yet, so it doesn't matter. Uh, no, no I'll the, the, uh, it's my, my folk band Stone Breath, and the song's called The Hide Behind. All right. Which is about a sort of Bigfoot. Oh, excellent. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Out of sight